As you well know, Toe dips its toes, so to speak, into philosophy, both publicly as well as I do so in my personal life. I encourage you to do the same with Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Nearly 2,000 years after it was written, this guide to personal growth remains eminently relevant for anyone seeking to lead a meaningful life. Meditations isn't your average self-help book. In fact, it was the emperor's personal journal, and this makes it useful not only as a form of propositional knowledge, but to aid perspectival knowledge, something that John Verveke talks about as exigent, though missing in our culture. We sit in this improbable, even preposterous position of having the opportunity to peer into one of the deepest soul-searching, thoughtful, private questions, internal struggles that the once leader of the world thought about in his moments alone. Like, man, I would love to interview him if Marcus were a guest on tow. Maybe he would be a fan of the CTMU. Maybe he would be a Castrop sympathizer. I'll leave that up to you. Dive into the philosophies of Marcus Aurelius today with the book that Ryan Holiday said is the greatest book ever written. Meditations is available from Penguin Random House at prh.com slash meditations. All right. Hello, tow listeners. Kurt here. That silence is missed sales. Now, why? It's because you haven't met Shopify, at least until now. Now that's success, as sweet as a solved equation. Join me in trading that silence for success with Shopify. It's like some unified field theory of business. Whether you're a bedroom inventor or a global game changer, Shopify smooths your path. From a garage-based hobby to a bustling e-store, Shopify navigates all sales channels for you. With Shopify powering 10% of all U.S. e-commerce and fueling your ventures in over 170 countries, your business has global potential. And their stellar support is as dependable as a law of physics. So don't wait. Launch your business with Shopify. Shopify has award-winning service and has the internet's best converting checkout. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories. All lowercase, that's shopify.com slash theories. Thought experiments in physics are pivotal for the generation of novel ideas, the dissolution of old ones, or simply for an original take on specific phenomena that already exist. Given that fundamental physics has been stalled in the past few decades, primarily due to a lack of data as well as other factors, and I'm trying to put forth my own theory of everything and integrate it with consciousness, I thought, how far can I go with thought experiments? James Robert Brown is a professor of philosophy, specializing in the philosophy of mathematics and physics at the University of Toronto, and he was generous enough to give me a few hours of his time. He's written several books, which I recommend you check out, and we spoke yesterday, which is what you'll see first, as well as at the end, I'm going to append a sliver of a conversation that me and him had about two years ago, but I never posted. This is perhaps the deepest dive you'll see on YouTube on thought experiments, as well as Platonism. There's even a test to see whether or not you're a Platonist or non-Platonist or Newtonian or Leibnizian, and they're in the timestamps. Again, in these podcasts, I tend to not shy away from technical details, for one, because I think when you sacrifice details, it's akin to sacrificing the truth, or at worst, giving a false impression, as well as I think that the audience, that is you, are extremely smart and you can keep up. Enjoy. It's as if this is my first time. All right, man. (laughs) Hello, Professor Brown. How's it going? It's going well. Uh, and please call me Jim. Okay, Jim. So, Jim, what are you working on these days? I'm working on uh, the connection between mathematics and ethics. 
there's uh, some features of both that are already well known. For instance, our mathematical knowledge and our ethical knowledge don't come from sensory experience. Like, yeah, do you mind you know, expounding? Uh, well, by sensory experience, I just mean sight, hearing, smell, taste. Um, you don't know that uh, there are infinitely many prime numbers because you've gone out and seen them. Right. Uh, you don't know that root two is an irrational number because you held up a ruler on a diagonal square and got an irrational number. Um, our mathematical knowledge is definitely not empirical, though it might be connected to the empirical world in some indirect ways, but it's certainly not like the natural sciences at all. Well, what does that have to do with ethics? Well, ethics is exactly the same. So um, uh, you could see one person kill another person. That could be an empirical experience. But to judge it as an immoral act is not empirical. Um, somebody pulls out a gun and shoots somebody else, and a red light doesn't flash in the corner of your eye saying, this was wicked, this was wicked. Okay? And... Um, uh, how we uh, uh, acquire ethical knowledge and how we acquire mathematical knowledge are surprisingly similar in a number of ways. You mentioned before in one of your talks on YouTube about the distinction between thick and thin concepts. Do you mind delineating that for the audience? Oh, n uh, not at all. Um, this is a really interesting idea. It's fairly new inside ethics. So the idea of thin concepts are Thin concepts can be anywhere. They can be in the sciences, in everyday life, and in ethics. So if I say, the house is on fire, I'm using thin concepts. If I say, um, uh, words like mass, color, taste, those are all thin concepts. Um, but they're from the factual realm. Okay? And then in the uh, ethical or uh, evaluative realm are more thin concepts, but they're just in a different realm. So good, bad, beautiful, ugly, um, uh, obligation, those duty, those are thin concepts from ethics. Okay, so the world, it seems like, is made up of thin concepts. Some are in the factual realm, some are in the normative, evaluative, ethical realm. Now, then um, a few years ago, people began to uh, focus on a number of words that we use in daily life and they seem to be really important in in how we treat things and how we reason and these these words are called thick and that's because they're simultaneously um, uh, fact type terms and um, e evaluative terms okay so if I say if I say Kurt you are very healthy that's actually, I'm saying two things. I'm talking about your health in a factual sense, like your blood pressure is 120 over 80, all right, for instance. But I'm saying more than that when I say you're healthy. I'm saying, and it's a good state that you're in. So there's an evaluative component as well as a factual component when I say you're healthy. If What's I another say, example beside, okay. Yeah, no, I'll beside give health. you lots more. Sure. Um, brave, courageous, okay? Courageous, uh, if I say Mary was courageous, that's a, that includes a kind of factual component, especially if 
we've just seen Mary run into a burning house and, and save the family's pet dog. Okay, so she's pulled it out. So there's a straightforward factual component to that about Mary's action. Okay, but there's also an evaluative component. Like what she did was a good thing. It's good to be brave. Well done, Mary. We're really proud of you. So brave is different. It's thick. Brave is thick. Now, some people say you don't need thick concepts. They're very convenient. Well, you don't need them. Because I could say this. Mary ran into the house. She brought out uh, the family dog. And here comes the evaluative. And what she did was good. Or I can just sort of summarize it. Mary was very brave. And the word brave, courageous, those sort of terms, those are thick concepts. And we use them a lot. And we reason with them a lot. Um, something is... Uh, um, and once you get that, once you get the feeling, um, it's uh, you, you can find them all over the place. Why so, is the word "good" not a thick concept? Uh, because it's 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 just thin. It just it's just pure evaluation. It doesn't tell you anything. Right, factual. right, right, right. Okay. Uh, it doesn't tell you anything factual. That's why it's thin, evaluative. And if I say Mary entered the burning house, that doesn't tell you anything uh, evaluative. It just gives you a, a factual description of something that happened. Okay. But once you get the hang of it, you see all sorts of terms are thick. Loyal, liar, dastardly, uh, untrustworthy. See, those. if I say, Kurt, you're very untrustworthy, I'm suggesting that you've cheated me on something or you've lied to other people or something like that. And it's a bad thing. Mm -hmm. okay? So you see how it's a thick term. Right. Does so, it always go to good or bad on that one line spectrum uh, no there, if you were if we were in if we were in the artistic realm uh it might be uh, rather than good or bad it might be beautiful ugly something like that okay but you can see the evaluative term uh in the one in the one from the one realm and the straightforward factual so if i describe a picture like well there's a little bit of red here and there's some blue there <laughs> okay that's that's the sort of you just read the rgb uh, values that's a thin, yeah, that's a thin description of the painting from a factual point of view. And then if I want to say it's spectacularly beautiful or it's charming, you know, sorry, charming, sorry, charming would be, um, would be a thick concept. It's beautiful, just plain beautiful. Okay, that would be a thin concept. And if I say it's charming, it's evocative uh, and, and suggesting a combination of things that are both factual and uh, uh, evaluative simultaneously. Those are the thick ones. Okay, so why am I interested in that? Because that's that's what I just told you is sort of standard. Right, and how does that relate to mathematics? Exactly, okay, that's the important question. So I've been thinking about, um, by the way, thick concepts in ethics, that's commonplace, okay? And everyone in ethics knows about thick, thin, and, and the standard views about them. Okay. When, when I was thinking about ethics and math, I'm looking for all kinds of connections between ethics and math, not just the one about neither of them are empirical, okay? Our knowledge isn't empirical in either case. What are the other connections? Well, one of them might be um, a kind, there might be an inside math and physics, a kind of thick concept. So I don't want to talk about facts and values now. I'm just using this as an analogy. So there can be math and there can be physics. Pure math, 
Okay, you understand pure math is just, you know, nothing but set theory. And pure physics has got nothing mathematical about it. And the way um, math gets applied is math provides models for the physical realm. This, my, what I just said is slightly contentious. It's probably a majority opinion, but there are lots of people who would dispute it. So let's just stick with the majority opinion for now. Um, math provides models of the world. And what a physicist will do is look at the, the range of models in Plato's heaven and say, I think this one is, is structurally very similar to the physical realm. Okay. Right. And, and we apply math in that sort of way. Now, uh, that would be thin. Pure math is just thin. Those are nothing but thin concepts. Pure physics, without any math in it, nothing but pure physical concepts. Could there be a thick concept that's, that, that's, that somehow or, or other involves both? Yeah. It's not just modeling. Modeling is by itself isn't going to do it. A thick concept would be a kind of really intimate uh, uh, intertwining of the two. And I was sort of vaguely thinking about this, and I came across um, a wonderful quote in a famous calculus book. The book, uh, for any mathematicians who are watching, they'll know the book. It's by Spivak. It's just called Calculus. Uh, did you take physics and math, Kurt? Yeah. Do you know the, you know the book I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, it's a famous book. It's first year. 157. Ah, okay. But it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful, oh, yeah. wonderful And his book. second book is also great. It's like a Dirac book where it's tiny. Oh, yeah. first book is large and then the second book on manifolds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's You're like, right. You're absolutely right. It's like right. two pages long. It takes you a whole <laughs> semester to get through that. Well, one page of exposition followed by 10 pages of uh, uh, gut-wrenching problems that are so hard to solve. Okay. So anyway, uh, there was this wonderful passage in uh, the calculus book. So he's just doing elementary stuff and he's teaching derivatives, first derivative, second derivative. And he says, all of this stuff is really important, especially the second derivative. Why? Well, think about Newton's, Newton's law, F equals MA. Uh, acceleration is the second derivative. Okay, we got, we got that. And then he says, next time you're in a car and you go around a corner, you can feel the second derivative. You think about that. No, no. I feel the acceleration. Right. And it's modeled. I don't feel derivative. a second derivative. Come on. I don't feel a second derivative. Don't be ridiculous. Nobody can feel a second derivative. It exists in Plato's heaven. You right. can't, you can't smell uh, an infinite series. You can't taste a tangent plane and you can't feel the second derivative. Right. That's what, that's what you should say. And I, and I, but the more I thought about it, I thought, I wonder, I wonder, I wonder if, if people who work with, um, well, with math in general, um, physicists and engineers in particular, who um, maybe have to do problems of motion where um, acceleration is important, and they get so used to uh, treating ex physical acceleration, think of the, the acceleration as an actual physical process and attaching it to the second derivative to calculate, it's become so internalized with them that acceleration and second derivative becomes a single concept. It's just a fused concept. This, this would be an example of a thick concept. 
And I got talking to some physicist friends uh, about this and they're, now they don't exactly understand and appreciate what I'm trying to get at, but there's enough of a, an understanding that they could sort of, they could sort of agree that the, that some parts of math, not all, but some parts of math that they use, they've so internalized that to utter the math or to other, utter the mathless physical description, um, they're just they're just uh, so intertwined. It's become one single thing. What else besides acceleration is there for math? Well, this would be hard. This because I, I don't want to say it's all the time because I, I wouldn't want to say that someone in quantum mechanics who thinks about the state of the system just flips over to a Hilbert space, which is how we represent states in quantum mechanics, and just thinks of them interchangeably. It's a possible candidate because we do use the same notation for both. We just use a simple psi function for the vector in a Hilbert space or for the state, meaning the, the physical property of a, of a quantum mechanical system. That's a candidate, but I'm, I'd be reluctant to say that stick. Maybe uh, an example is a very old example, a good example, and that's real numbers and points on a line. So, you know, you, you have a, a line, just say the unit interval. Right. And we, and we just attach all the real numbers between zero and one. Okay. And we think of a real number and a point as the same thing. You mm, just you just okay. back and forth, and, and once you it's it's well it's the it's the whole basis of analytic geometry. Okay. Ever since ever since Descartes said it was, uh, four hundred years ago, when he just said real numbers and uh, points on a line, or pairs of numbers and um, points in in a plane and so on. We just they're just completely interchangeable. Right, and you're saying that that's a thick concept because I think the, I think maybe the word line yeah, implies space. Number. Number, uh, not line, let's say point, point and number, point and number, they become um, almost a single concept. Now we can separate them. Okay, I can ask you to separate okay. in your mind and you can do that. But they're so interchangeable. In fact, they're so interchangeable that um, Gödel, in a famous article called What is Cantor's Continuum Hypothesis, starts out, he says, the continuum hypothesis is the question, um, how many real numbers are there, or equivalently, how many points are there on a line? He just takes them to be the, the same issue, and right. that's that's surprising for a, a logician who is, you know, super super careful about um, about making distinctions when he thinks it's appropriate. Okay, so what's the significance of this? Why are you spending your time thinking about this? The I think it's intrinsically interesting, but uh, for me, it can it might actually do some work. Um, uh, you know, you know the continuum hypothesis. This is the the claim that um, the first uncountable infinity is um, Aleph one, and it might be. And it, and the claim is that it is um, the real numbers. The real numbers have size Aleph one. The natural numbers are it's infinitely many, but there's only Aleph zero of them. The real numbers are a bigger infinity. Right, and right. the conjecture is that um, they're the, the next biggest infinity. So they'd be Aleph 1. No one's been able to prove the continuum hypothesis uh, or refute it. And in fact, uh, there are, um, uh, there's an independence proof. 
meaning you can't prove it and you can't refute it on the basis of existing axioms of set theory. Right. And if you think if you think that the existing axioms of set theory are adequate for the whole of mathematics, what that really means is the continuum hypothesis is independent of all of mathematics. Right, right. Now you can know everything in math, you still don't wouldn't know the continuum hypothesis. So it's you could you could just arbitrarily make it a a new axiom. That would solve the problem, but it, it would be very unsatisfying because right. why are you doing that rather than making its negation the new axiom? So we're looking around for um, what you might call independent evidence for the continuum hypothesis one way or the other. Mm -hmm. What might work? Well, maybe physical analogies would work. You know, you just sort of think about it. You're not going to prove it. You're not going to have an, any old-fashioned proof. But you might have some other kind of argument. If you are a realist or a mathematical Platonist, you're going to say it is true or it is false. I just don't know which. Okay. Now, question. How much detail do you want Oh, that's fine. Well, let's go in more. I know Gödel was a Platonist, and he believed it's either Gödel true or was false. a Platonist. Yeah, yeah. I think that he proved that it's. I don't recall if it's both either the negation or the positive yeah. affirmation he, of the, the continuous hypothesis. He, he, he showed that it's consistent. consistent. It's consistent right. with the rest of set theory. Yeah, you can add it, and you won't get into trouble. Right. And it was later Cohen showed that you can add the negation, and you won't get into trouble. And that and the, the two results together give you independence. The audience will keep up. Get into as much detail as you like. Let's go into a, a disproof of the continuum hypothesis. Okay. You'll have well, to be hand wavy because we don't have papers and pens. That's right. PowerPoint slides. And this is a this is a result um, um, a number of years ago from Chris Freiling, uh, an American logician, <clears throat> and it's in it's it's, it's wonderfully clever. And it's a refutation of the continuum hypothesis. Okay, so um, as you say, it'll be a bit hand wavy. <laughs> so for for those with a math education, um, they will know what. Uh, oh, I'm going to start out with what's called Zermelo-Frankel set theory, including the axiom of choice. <clears throat> okay, now with the axiom of choice. Um, we can prove what's known as the well-ordering theorem, which means right. that you take any set whatsoever and you can give it a well-ordering. And that's to, and that means you can line it up with the ordinal numbers. So one, two, three, four, five, and then omega, which is now the first uh, infinite ordinal. And then you keep counting ordinals, ordinals, ordinals. And then when you get all of the countable ordinals done, you get into the uncountable ordinals. This is, this is this this will sound like um, uh, mystical nonsense unless you've taken a course in set theory and learned about the hierarchy of infinite sets. So anyway, the well-ordering theorem says that you can put any set, including the real numbers between zero and one, you can line them up with the this infinite string of ordinals. Now, they won't go in the same order as the, the natural less than order. They'll be jumping all over the place. You know, like one half might be associated. It's not an intuitive ordering. It's not like we, we have any apprehension of it. No. Uh, the theorem can... just guarantees it. Yeah, it the, 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 the well-ordering theorem guarantees that 
that it exists. But nobody has any idea of what a well-ordering of the real numbers would be. No one's found one yet. We've got well-orderings of the rational numbers, and they're pretty straightforward, but not of the real numbers. Um, so, right, any, and technically, the well-ordering theorem says that the subset, that any subset is well-ordered. It says that any subset has a first element. Right. Uh, just to see that the ordinary ordering is not a well-ordering, if I say, take all the real numbers greater than one-half. Sorry, can you repeat that just to say that what? Take the real numbers yep. greater than one-half. Mm -hmm. What's the first element? Right, right, right. Greater than doesn't, but not including one-half. Doesn't have. Yeah, right, that's right. 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 Uh, it doesn't have a first element. So that's just not a well-ordering. But with some other bizarre ordering, I might take them. Uh, any subset, and and it would have to have a well order. Uh, okay. Would have, to be, uh, have to be a first element. Okay. So we've um, we we imagine that we've got a well ordering of the real numbers, but just between zero and one. That'll do. Okay. Now comes a little statistical argument. You and I are going to throw darts. We're going to throw darts at the real line between zero and one. It's a thought experiment. Can't do it in reality, but a thought experiment. I throw a dart and I hit a number P, somewhere between zero and one. You throw your dart and you hit a number Q, also on the line between zero and one. Now I'm gonna make the following argument. Um, your, uh, your dart hit the number Q, which is going to be later in the well ordering than my dart p. Why? Because there's only um, a countable infinity at most of numbers earlier in the well ordering from p and an uncountable infinity after. And right. so so that you, you might be earlier than me, but the probability is zero. Right, right, right. And you, your dart, you, you, you've hit uh, number q and you can say exactly the same argument. You're going to say the chance that I'm earlier in the well ordering is zero, mm -hmm. and the chance that it's later is is one. Now we've got an absurdity because I I said you've got to be later than me, right, 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 and you've argued correctly that I've got to be later than you, right, and, uh, and we have and, different and, points. Yeah, and and we now we've just got an absurdity, and why? What led to this absurdity? the assumption that there are Aleph 1 real numbers. If there were Aleph 2, it wouldn't be a problem. But okay, if, why, why is that? Because uh, we, I might have landed in uh, an, an uncountable, there might be an uncountable number of points earlier than me, and an uncountable earlier than you. So we couldn't argue. We wouldn't uh -huh. be able to do that. The trick is, when you've got a countable infinity of numbers, and here comes the result from what's known as measure theory. The the pro, it's it uh, the chance of landing in there is zero. It's not impossible, but it's zero probability. Right, okay. and that's interesting for people to wrap their head around that you can have a zero probability but possible. That's right. It's not right. Yeah, well. People exactly, can look that it's up. Not the same as impossible. Okay. Um, if that if if anyone just to take a slight tangent. Anyone who finds that absurd, think of a roulette wheel 
with uh, um, every real number between zero and one on it. Okay, you spin the wheel, and it's going to stop somewhere. What's the what's the chance it's going to land on say one half? Well, there's infinitely many places it could stop. So the chance is one out of infinity, which is going to be zero. It can happen, but it's going to be zero probability. Okay, yeah. so you and I now have uh, this little, we've each got this little argument, and um, um, and we each show that the, uh, that the other guy is, is uh, uh, impossible. Uh, this is absurd. And the assumption, the background assumption that led to this, that the continuum hypothesis is true, is, is in trouble. You've got to throw it out. Okay. All right. Now, this is really interesting. I mean, it's it, it could be an argument, uh, you know, that settles the continuum hypothesis, though it's not a proof in any ordinary mathematical sense. It's really different. Um, mathematicians who look at this are, oh, they're very queasy. You know, they don't like this kind of reasoning. Um, they don't mind suggestive reasoning that's outside of mathematics, but they don't want to take it as real evidence that that you know uh, uh, that this could be a theorem, you know, a real a real genuine sure to be true result. Very uneasy about it, and I'm uneasy about it. I'm also curious as how it works. I mean, I know how it, I, I can reproduce the proof. I know how it works in that sense, but why the hell does it work? You know, it shouldn't work. As in, what is its connection to reality? How is it that we can think this and it's true? Is that what you mean by how? No, it, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's sort of that's that's behind it all uh, for sure. But in particular, there are assumptions made for this little argument to go, and and here that here 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 are some of the assumptions. First of all, the real numbers and the points on the line correspond. Okay, so the geometric line between zero and one. And the uh, uncountable infinity be uh, between zero and one real numbers, they're, they're exactly the same. They pair up. Ah, ah, yeah, okay. okay? Um, it's an obvious assumption to make given the long history of analytic geometry, but I just want to make sure it's there. Second thing, when you threw a dart and I threw a dart, um, each, each of us hits a point at random. Um, the chance of hitting any point along the line is is no different than any other point okay it's equa probability for every point okay my that's true for my dart also true for your dart there's a symmetry between our throws in the sense that it doesn't matter if you throw first and i throw second or i throw first and you throw second or if we throw simultaneously it's irrelevant and finally uh, independence the your result has no effect on my result mm -hmm. and vice versa Okay. Now, when you think of all of those assumptions, these are crucial assumptions. Um, things like um, probability uh, can be captured completely inside set theory. Independence can be captured in completely inside set theory. Um, the symmetry of the two throws can be captured completely inside symmetry. How come the damn argument works? Because if I, if I try to spell out the probability of my little argument, uh, or the symmetry or the independence. I tried to spell it out in standard mathematics, and could get that result. Then, uh, then, then something uh, would have gone terribly wrong. I can't get that result 
from ordinary mathematics. So the probability in my argument, the independence in the argument, the symmetry in the argument can't be the probability, symmetry, and independence of standard mathematics. Something else, something weird's going on. It's, it must be a related but a different concept in each case. What do you think is going on? I think it's a thick concept. I think probability as we normally use it is a thin concept, thin mathematical concept. I think in the DART thought experiment, to refute the continuum hypothesis, I think probability has taken on a new richness in the example. It's become physicalized in some sense. And so here's where I'm looking at the analogy with ethics. Instead of a thin concept from mathematics or a thin concept from physics, I've got a thick, this is thick probability. It's got both physical and mathematical aspects to it. Like, like courageous is both. In set theory, we can formalize probability. Yeah. So what's, what's thick about this? Just the, just throwing the dart, but we can not use the dart and say we pick a point at random. And there's obviously random variables and which have nothing to do with darts. So what's what's thick? I, I don't hear what's thick about this. I don't know. Is Maybe that... I'm thick. You, you got to help oh, me no, out. No, no, not at all. The, the, the thickness, the thickness would come in, in the way the thought experiment is done. You're supposed to imagine yourself throwing a, a dart at an actual line. Try to try to make it physical. Even if you think of it's mathematical, it's outside of set theory. Why, it's, do, it's, why do you have to imagine geometric. that? Why, why can't you just say pick a point at random instead of throwing a dart? Is there a difference? Well, the dart the dart is is supposed to be a guarantee that it's genuinely at random. Um, if I asked you to pick a real number between zero and one at random, I'm almost certain you couldn't do it. Um, I know, I know. What I'm saying is that you can formalize what it means to pick a number from zero to one randomly in statistics, independent yeah. of saying throw a dart. And you can formalize it with set theory, no? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. That's certainly true. Uh, the thing is, well, here's what here's what I'm I am faced with, and you're faced with. Uh, if we assume that the argument works, the Freiling argument works right. as a refutation, okay. we assume it works. And and um, and it does seem to make these crucial assumptions. Well, it assumes Zermelo-Frankel set theory with choice, okay? And and then it assumes the, the randomness of the dart throw, the, the symmetry of the dart throw, the independence of the dart throw, uh, and the correspondence between real numbers and points on a line. It assumes that. If that, if the, all of that is just part of mathematics, existing mathematics, then we would have derived a refutation of the continuum hypothesis inside mathematics. Right, right, right. And that's already It, it wouldn't have been independent impossible. after all. Right. Since it is independent, demonstrably independent, one of those premises has to be false. I see, I see. And so uh, if, if I just say, well, let's take the randomness one. I don't know which one is false. At least one of them has got to be false. So the randomness one is false. There must be um, um, it, the randomness that we're assuming in the thought experiment cannot be analyzed in normal set theory terms. It's got to have some kind of physical 
component that enriches it so that we can pull off this argument. So that's where, this is where the thick concepts come I in. See. So I it, see. it becomes not ordinary randomness in, in standard math. It becomes a thick randomness. It's got a physical, it's become physicalized some important sense now you say physicalized with a grimace is that because there is you're a platonist and you feel like well if it's not a thin mathematical and by the way is there a, is there a connection between thin and thick and platonism and non-platonism i don't know um most of the people who talk about thick and thin uh, in ethics what they are um they often conclude uh that this is the end of the fact value distinction so if you think of facts as part of the physical realm, and if you were a Platonist about ethics, and, and they're declaring the end of this dichotomy between moral reality and physical reality, um, then I'm not sure about the status of moral reality when it's all over. I would like to think it's still there. And these are a, a kind of hybrid um, human-made concepts, uh, both in ethics and in math. So, that is to say that you would like to believe that morals are a part of of the Platonistic world, or morals. Oh, are definitely. Part of our world? Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm a moral realist. Yeah, for me, there's. Um, I hate the I hate the distinction between fact and value, because it makes it sound like values aren't themselves facts, but they are. They're moral facts. Uh, murder is uh, is wrong. That's a moral fact. Setting kittens right. on fire for pleasure to watch them burn and suffer. It, that's it's a moral fact that that's uh, wrong how how do we get to how do we get that moral fact where does that moral fact come from okay now this is this is this gets back to the the problem a simultaneous problem for both ethics and for mathematics so uh, most platonists believe not only in the reality of mathematics and if you're a platonist about ethics or a moral realist you believe in objective moral facts the the big problem and the thing that uh, people who are empiricists and naturalists complain about is you have no access to these facts, even if they did exist, because you can see, smell, touch and so on. But if these live in a, in a realm completely separate from us, you have no contact with them, you couldn't learn about them and so on and so on. The response from uh, moral realists, Platonists, um, is to appeal to um, intuition and intuition is a cognitive capacity that we have that um, will give us um, uh, um, knowledge so to take math we have everybody has you know scads of moral intuitions about math even if you had almost no mathematical training you have a powerful intuition that two plus two equals four and that's a moral intuition sorry no a mathematical intuition uh, that 2 plus 2 equals 4. And if I pressed you and I said, oh, look, I just read in the newspaper today that, um, you know, in uh, 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 in Brazil, um, some wonderful physicists in Brazil have just done some fine-tuned measurements and they have discovered that 2 plus 2 actually equals 3.95. It doesn't equal 4 after all. Right. This is actually just this is really germane because there was a recent controversy about 2 plus 2 equals 5. I don't know if you've heard of it. No. Okay. So well, I think about... that one okay, side we is can talk about joking. that afterwards. <laughs> no, no, no. The other side was being serious. It was, it was 
because they were saying that the way that math is set up is Western and oh. it's not taking into account other modes of knowing and there are possible worlds where 2 plus 2 could equal 5 and in different interpretations, which it's true. I mean, if you have modulo or something, I'm sure you can make 2 plus 2 equal 5 or you round oh, up. Oh, sure, you can have modulo. You're absolutely right. right. But it doesn't mean and there may be standard some interpretation. Rules. And there's probably good rules of thumb in in some sciences where you you're you're now not talking two plus two you're talking about two somethings and two somethings so if you're talking about uh what is it water a liter of water mixed with a liter of alcohol perhaps doesn't give you two liters of liquid it gives you something like 1.9 liters of liquid because of the you know the some atomic goings on reduces the the volume of the whole thing uh, you could you might conveniently talk that way uh, yeah because you're in the lab and it's very constrained but no two plus two equals four and more generally uh, you know a little bit of arithmetic and I'm, i can become abstract and i can say um any number m and any number n if i add them together m plus n it's going to equal n plus m and everybody they think about that for a minute and a half and say yeah yeah right i see it Yes, it's true, and it has to be true. That's an example of a mathematical intuition. Okay. 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 Yep. It's not empirical, though. Um, math and ethics have been the two thorns in the side of empiricism. Okay. Um, I'm going to play ethics, devil's advocate just for a second because I'm trying to sure. wrap my head around this. When you have n plus, when you have like a plus b equals b plus a, just so that it's clear for, the, do sure. we not define that with the addition being commutative? Like you, and then we make we a model and say that our numbers correspond to it. We we, we do, but um, uh, people's elementary experience with arithmetic would lead them in that very direction. Okay, they've done enough adding. They've, they've been making change. They've been counting pebbles. Who knows what? Um, and after a while, they come to realize that whether they've been told that the community. Okay, you're you're told. strictly speaking about the intuition behind it, not yeah. proving it to be true. That's right. Uh, because to well, to the prove, audience, see, proving so, it to be true, that's really interesting. We actually yeah. assume it in in the way that we define addition and multiplication that they're communicating. Doing arithmetic in any formal sense, we typically start out with something known as the piano axioms. Okay, and they tell us how to add, how to multiply, and they give us a principle called mathematical induction, and then everything in arithmetic follows. Well, I need to qualify that. Almost everything in arithmetic follows. There is a, a problem about completeness, but never mind that. Um, and everybody's intuition, if you've been playing with arithmetic for a while, you'd say, yeah, this is the truth. This is how addition works. This is how multiplication works. Okay, let's not get hung up on it. Let's assume that okay, we, that's we have an, an intu are, a strong are, intuition and we prove Those are examples of intuitions. Now, uh, we have the same thing in ethics. So um, um, if you saw somebody if you saw some teenage kids catch a kitten pour gasoline on it set it on fire you would be aghast you would be morally outraged um, you have a very strong moral intuition that that was an evil thing to do but those kids don't uh they might they might and they are just uh, overwhelmed by peer pressure and gang behavior and stuff like that and, they, and you're right. They might not even. Yeah. Uh, now let's imagine they might not. Let's take the edge case. The which? The edge cases, just to investigate this. So what if they genuinely 
don't have anything wrong with that. Like Genghis Khan, for example, said, the best life would be conquering his enemies and enslaving their women. And now we look at that and say that that's ridiculous, but yeah. let's believe him that that actually invoked pleasure in him and he thought that was morally correct. Sure. Okay, well, okay, um, so then, I, I, then don't, I, don't know, I don't know enough about him to know exactly what's going on. So I'll give you the short answer, and that is we've made a hell of a lot of moral progress since since that right. announcement. Right. How do, we make, how do we make the claim that we've made moral progress without already assuming what we're trying to prove? That's a very that difficult, that's a, an extremely difficult question. Um, I don't want to say, uh, well, the, my views have won over the long run, um, though they have. Like, my view is we shouldn't have slavery. And almost everybody agrees with that now. My view is that women should be treated equally with men. And most people agree with that now, though they wouldn't have a century ago. My view is that um, um, gays and lesbians and, and so on should be treated with, uh, you know, equal rights and dignity and so on and so on. And I'd say uh, at least a, a strong majority of Canadians, if not a strong majority of the world population, agree with that. So um, I, I don't have a hard and fast non-circular argument. I can say that as people think about these things over time, they tend to change their views in the direction that, that we have come. Not many people were against slavery for years and years and then had an epiphany and said, I made a terrible mistake. I think we should have slaves. I think that'd be a great idea. Okay. People don't go in that direction. Uh, let, me, let me press for a bit. I actually sure. agree with you, but here's what I'm okay. thinking. Here's what pops into my head. So a social consensus, what is required? And what if 10 years from now, you know, there's some evidence that people who are on the lower end of the IQ spectrum have more children. Let's just imagine that many people, and we can even demean them and say conservatives. Like, let, let's say, we're, let's imagine sure, that we're, let's we're progressive that. liberals. I'm not, even, I'm not saying we are, but let's just say okay. these foolish reactionary conservatives are the ones that populate the earth, and then they like it slavery later. And the majority yeah. of the earth likes slavery, except those who are yeah. enslaved, but they're a minority. Yeah. Does that make that correct? No. Okay. No, no, no. Right. There so is there's something objective. else. So what's, what's going on? A, okay. So there's two questions. Um, is there such a thing as objective right or wrong? Right. Yes. I mean, correct. Is there, is, there, is there an objective shape of the earth? Yes. I think... Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. 
Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. It's round. It's spherical. And I think we've got a ton of evidence that this is so. But if for some reason in the future people said, no, we're pretty sure it's flat. Um, And then I would say, well, I pity that future civilization. They've got it wrong. They've made a terrible mistake. That's straight factual stuff. Okay, morally, if people actually said, well, we think think slavery is a pretty good idea. um, I'd say, no, I would say they've made a terrible, terrible mistake. But um, I acknowledge the possibility that it could happen. Germany was a very Germany was a very progressive country uh, in the you know nineteenth uh, and very early twentieth century, and then by the time you know horrible calamities in in the uh, in the thirties, uh, Hitler comes to power, and a majority of Germans are willing to go along with some pretty horrific views. Uh huh. Yeah, they're okay. just wrong. They're just wrong. Razor blades are like diving boards. The longer the board, the more the wobble, the more the wobble, the more nicks, cuts, scrapes. A bad shave isn't a blade problem, it's an extension problem. Henson is a family-owned aerospace parts manufacturer that's made parts for the International Space Station and the Mars rover. Now they're bringing that precision engineering to your shaving experience. By using aerospace-grade CNC machines, Henson makes razors that extend less than the thickness of a human hair. The razor also has built-in channels that evacuates hair and cream, which make clogging virtually impossible. Henson Shaving wants to produce the best razors, not the best razor business. So that means no plastics, no subscriptions, no proprietary blades, and no planned obsolescence. It's also extremely affordable. The Henson Razor works with the standard dual-edge blades that give you that old-school shave with the benefits of this new-school tech. It's time to say no to subscriptions and yes to a razor that'll last you a lifetime. Visit hensonshaving.com everything. If you use that code, you'll get two years worth of blades for free. Just make sure to add them to the cart. Plus 100 free blades when you head to H-E-N-S-O-N-S-H-A-V-I-N-G dot com slash everything and use the code everything. Okay, we can talk about that another time. But basically, my argument was this. Well, first of all, I want to make it clear to the people who are watching that I don't think low IQ people are conservative. I was just straw manning for the sake of argument. Sure. Okay, second. I thought that what you were suggesting was given that we have a line toward something that over time people believe in a certain value, that's evidence that the value is objectively correct. And then I was saying, well, what if that reverses or we go into another direction? And then you're saying, no, that's wrong. But how does that not jive with saying that there's societal movement towards a certain direction? And that corresponds to being objectively correct morally. No, no, it's, it, it, this is, this is a, a very good question, and it's very hard to answer. I don't have a terrific answer. I only have a weak answer. And my weak answer is that um, uh, it's like science. We, we make progress in science. Um, it's possible that what we believe today about, let's say, quantum mechanics and relativity, 100 years from now, people will say, uh, I don't know. Let's go back to Newton. Let's believe Newton, okay? 
I think I think the chances of that are minuscule. And the thing is that there's been incremental evidence. It's fallible evidence. But incremental evidence all along pushes people upward. Okay? It makes us brighter. We know more. We're more sophisticated in physics. And I think something like that goes on in our moral and political lives too. Interesting. Okay. Now, with regards to Newtonian physics becoming relativity sure. and then okay we say that one is more correct because it can explain more so it's just that's evidence that's right. evidence is, is pure explanatory power what makes the theory correct and the reason no. why i say that is no. okay no explanatory power is a sign is evidence that it's correct i see i see okay um it is it this this much is logically possible for anyone who's a realist that uh, all the evidence could point away from the truth. Everything that we count as evidence, like, is it explanatorily powerful? Yeah. Um, does it, um, is it incredibly accurate? You know, does it make uh, spectacular predictions to the 25th decimal place? Yeah, it might do that too. And it might, and yet in spite of all of this, it might be false. What are your views on free will, by the way? Do you believe in it? Yes. Do you believe against it? Oh, interesting. Uh, okay, I, now are you like Daniel Dennett where you say, well, I have a compatibilist view? No, I, I have here, I, 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 I feel completely at sea. I, speculate I, away. It's okay, I operate. No. I, I live my life as if I have free will. I am, I eat too much and I blame myself. I blame my willpower, and uh, while it would be very nice to blame something else, I can't. I just blame myself. I I get angry at others. I get angry. I mean, some people I think can't help what they believe. Others I think have gone out of their way to make themselves stupid, and I blame them for that. So I'm I'm happy to blame people for not doing what I think they ought to do, and I do think they have free will. I don't know how to live in a world where we really don't have free will. But I may have, I may be just highly, um, that's not an argument for free will. That's just an argument for, we have to live as if, as if there is free will. Um, I don't know how uh, really to live otherwise. Now I've seen some people who are very sophisticated, you know, talk about this subject and um, maybe they'll be able to persuade me in the long run that we don't have free will or there's a very good chance we don't have any free will but we should we can act like this and this and this and this and so on so mm -hmm. I, I i really i I'm, i have childish immature underdeveloped views about free will the standard view that's opposed to free will is well what caused you to make so-and-so decision and then it's your yeah. neurology okay well what caused that and you keep going yeah, until yeah. you get to a cause that's not you yeah so you just get along that chain of causes right Right. Where does that chain of reductionism, because we just talked about physics being extremely powerful and more and more yep. accurate, and there doesn't seem to be room for free will. So where does free will comport with our view of physics in the way that it's formalized currently? No, it, it's terrible. Um, but it doesn't have to be quite as crude as you just uh, put it. Here's another uh, issue in which I do not have strong views, but it's sort of in the background. And this is the difference between, uh, this is the issue of reductionism and emergence. Uh, 
-hmm. So if you have a complete reductionist view and your world is deterministic, it's very hard to make room for free will. But if you have an emergentist view, that is, uh, yeah, physics is at the bottom, but in a certain level of complexity, there could emerge biological laws. Like strong emergence. Yeah. And out of that could emerge uh, psychological laws and, right, and so right. on. And and free will would be you know something that is emerging at some higher level. It's not gonna it's not gonna it's not gonna emerge out of elementary particle physics. I mean sometimes people try to do that because they, they take quantum indeterminacy to to be a, you know, it's just stupid. It's just really bad arguments. Um, but if, if we did have some kind of emergence, you might have, you might have free will. Right. But I, again, I, I can't make up my mind That's on right. that That's issue right. either. Okay. Yeah. Where I was going to go is there's no evidence for strong emergence, but there's plenty of evidence for reductionism. Like there's no link in the chain that's broken in the reductionist account as far as we could tell so then to believe that we have free will and i'm i'm not suggesting that i don't believe i'm just throwing something out so to believe that we have free will seems to be counter to evidence so how do you jive with saying that i'm a person who goes wherever the evidence leads me but simultaneously saying that i'm someone who believes in free will and when i say go wherever the evidence believes sorry that i'm a person that i'm a person who goes wherever the evidence leads I mean evidence in terms of scientific evidence, because obviously sure. you can be a spiritualist and say, well, I have the intuitions. And sure. maybe you might appeal to intuitions, but I'm curious. So what yeah. do you say to that? Um, well, I'm, I, I do. Uh, um, I do count myself as somebody who's led by the evidence. Scientific uh, evidence. On the other hand, on the other hand, I'm not, I don't agree with you about, um, we, it, it's, uh, uh, there's no gaps in the going from us to elementary particles. I mean, try to imagine um, accounting for Donald Trump's election in terms of writing down the Schrodinger equation for the population right. of the world what I meant. and then solving it and getting out that Donald Trump right, right. is president. What, what I meant was that so far there's no link that's been shown to be false. That doesn't mean that there is. No, no, no. I, I, I completely agree with you. So there's uh, no evidence for anyway, it. And there's plenty it wouldn't of evidence. Be very reliable. That would be like religious people who argue for the God of the gaps. God fills in the gaps in our scientific knowledge. Yeah, it's a foolish way of doing it. Let's talk about Platonism. Do you mind defining for the audience what Platonism is? Sure. Um, uh, modern Platonism, as opposed to being a strict follower of Plato. Uh, modern Platonism is simply the view that uh, there are abstract entities. Numbers being the most obvious um, example of this. That they they have exist in, in some way, shape or form? Yep, they're real. They exist. Um, and there are facts about them, like um, 2 plus 2 equals 4. Um, there are infinitely many prime numbers and so on. And these uh, objects... And these facts are completely independent from uh, intelligent creatures. So even if no intelligent life existed anywhere in the universe, it would still be true that there are infinitely many prime numbers. If you believe that, you're a Platonist. In fact, there's a little litmus test for audience members who've never thought about it before. Ask yourself, um, do you think mathematicians discover new truths of mathematics or do they 
somehow invent or create them. Shakespeare created Hamlet. If Shakespeare or no intelligent being had ever existed, Hamlet would not exist. On the other hand, the spherical shape of the earth would still be a fact, even if no intelligent being had ever existed. I say math is more like the shape of the earth and less like Hamlet. That's what it is to be a, a mathematical realist or a Platonist. When you say something that just popped into my head was the infinite monkeys on the typewriter, and then you can make an analogy between Shakespeare and information. And so just say the works of Shakespeare is just one extremely large number, given that you can translate it to bits isomorphically. Okay, and that number exists. So then did Shakespeare actually invent Hamlet or did he discover no, it? No, 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 no. Uh, arithmetic is rich enough that it can encode Hamlet. That's all. So, so, so technically, did he discover it or did he create it? Uh, Hamlet, uh, Hamlet was created by Shakespeare, not discovered by Shakespeare. Okay. But when the mathematician discovers uh, or, or produces, when Euclid produced the theorem that there are infinitely many prime numbers, Euclid discovered something. He discovered something that exists, that is true, independent from him. He didn't make it up. I see. It's not a cultural item of any sort. It's it's as it's just a brute way the world is. I see. I see. I see. But it's the abstract world. It's not a physical object. It's an abstract yes. entity. Yeah. Now, what creates this Platonic world? It's always been there. Nothing created it. Yeah. So how do we talk about the Platonic world without sounding mystical, without sounding theological? It's like it's always there. It's 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 ever present. It is timeless it's an uncaused cause yeah well you can imagine you can imagine the the universe the physical universe always existing right in fact there's a good there's good reason to believe that it always has uh, i know we're we we're we talk about big bang cosmology and we're what 13.8 billion years old but if but the inflationary scenario we're probably just one of you know the multiverse and these things have been going on forever so our mini our universe is just one of a infinite number of pocket universes pocket universes have always existed and they generate more um through this process called eternal inflation or just go back to pre-big bang cosmology where we used to believe um standard physics believed that the universe was infinitely old it didn't have a beginning and it won't have an end. It just is eternal. Not created by God. This is atheists. We're happy to believe this. It's just this is the way things are. So the Platonic world was always there. Always. Or even to say the word always implies formulating it in terms of time and it's timeless. This is an, there's an old philosophical distinction we hardly use anymore between eternal and sempiternal. Um, semp eternal, eternal? Semp eternal. So uh, semp eternal means true at all times. Eternal means outside of time. So mathematics is true outside of time. If, 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 uh, if numbers were somehow or other, which a, a small number of people believe, a kind of part of the physical realm but a kind, but somehow attached to the physical realm. So if the physical realm didn't exist, numbers wouldn't exist. That would be a semp-eternal version. 
So in, in casual talk, we say, yeah, it's eternal. It's always the case. But this distinction, like God, standard view of God, God is eternal outside of creation. Right. Uh, whereas whatever God created is, and if, if God created anything that lasted forever in creation, that would be sempiternal. I see, I see. Wittgenstein had a quote about this. He said, if eternal means infinite temporal length, then that, if, that would be sempiternal. Right. If it didn't mean that, but instead meant outside of time, then anyone who lives in the present moment is living eternally. A, yeah, well, that's beautiful. Uh, <laughs> also a bit mystical. A few weeks ago, I emailed, or maybe a couple months ago, I emailed you about thought experiments. Or I don't recall how the conversation started, but you sent me a book on thought experiments. You didn't know that I was thinking of writing a book. I actually started, but your book was far more articulate than mine about thought experiments. Just... That's I recommend people who watch this to, to read. It's like a, it's like Spivak's second book on manifolds. It's a short read <laughs> and compendious. Something I've been trying to develop is, is there a way of formulating the laws of physics from pure thought experiments? What drove me to think that was the Galileo experiment, the thought experiment of, with Galileo. And you had already thought about this as well. And in fact, you just started writing a book about it. It's not like you, you solved the problem otherwise. We'd, we'd invent plenty of new technology, but you've made what I think is progress. So let's talk about that book. Do you think that ultimately the laws of physics can be generated from armchair philosophy, just sitting back and thinking a thought experiment? Uh, certainly not all. Uh, in fact, not even most. Uh, but just every now and then, I think we, we can uh, learn something about the world in a non-empirical way. And um, my favorite example is uh, Galileo and uh, falling objects. Galileo's, uh, Galileo's a wonderful thought experimenter. Maybe the best ever. Uh, he's absolutely terrific. Uh, Einstein was a very good thought experimenter too. Um, they're probably in the same league. But if anything, I think Galileo is um, a notch above. Um, the my favorite thought experiment of all time and i remember hearing it when i was an undergraduate and thought it was the most dazzling thing i'd ever heard and this is the uh argument for uh all objects regardless of how heavy they are fall at the same rate so it's a thought experiment you imagine yourself going up on the leaning tower of pisa if you like and you're dropping a cannonball which is quite heavy and a musket ball, which is relatively quite a bit lighter. Now, the, the common sense view and the view in, uh, in Aristotle are the same. It says that heavy objects will just fall faster than light objects. And we've got a lot of experience to that effect. You know, I mean, if you do throw a cannonball and a, and a feather, you know, you know that the cannonball is going to hit the ground a lot sooner. Um, so Galileo says, all right. If uh, heavy objects fall faster than light objects, let's imagine a compound object consisting of a cannonball and a musket ball glued together, okay, um, and drop it. Now we've got three things. We've got a, a cannonball, a musket ball, and this composite objects. Now on the principle that heavy objects fall faster, this composite object is gonna fall fastest of all of the three. But unfortunately, it's not. It's going to be slowed down by the fact that 
the cannonball part of the composite object wants to fall at its fast rate, but it's going to be held back by this little musket ball attached to it, who's wanting to fall at a slower rate. So it's like jumping out of a window with a little tiny parachute. It's going to slow you down. Um, and so that's absurd. The composite object will be both faster and slower than the heavy cannonball by itself. There, it's, and that was the end of common sense about falling objects and the end of Aristotle on free fall. And, but the solution, how fast do things fall, is obvious when you've reached this point. And here's, the, here's where, the, where a physical intuition actually comes in. And you don't need to perform the experiment. You just think about it and you realize, oh, they all have to fall at the same rate. And, that'll, and that's how things fall. Right, things right. Fall at the same rate, regardless of, of how heavy they are. To me, this is still one of the most beautiful thought experiments as well. And it, it's what led me on the journey of thinking. I wonder how much more of physics can be gleaned by just thinking about what's consistent, what contradicts. Oh, a ton of things. Um, Galileo's other, I think his other very, very famous thought experiment is the uh, inside the ship, um, where he can't tell by hypothesis, he can't tell whether the ship is stationary in the port or moving uh, across a very smooth ocean. And he says, okay, I'm inside and uh, birds are flying around inside, front to back. And it's the same whether I'm sailing or at port. I throw a, a ball to my friend back and forth, same whether we're moving or in port. Fish are in, a, in a, an aquarium tank inside the ship and they swim back and forth in the tank and it doesn't matter whether we're stationary or moving. Everything is the same on the inside. And that's his argument for um, um, what has become the principle of relativity, that inertial frames the laws of nature are exactly the same in any inertial frame, whether it's a stationary one at rest in port or moving smoothly over the, over the sea. Um, the, the right. What was the impetus for him thinking of this thought experiment? Was it because he was suggesting the earth is moving and people were wondering, well, shouldn't we be moving if the earth is moving or was it something else? That's, that's exactly right. There was another thought experiment prior, not Galileo's, but prior to Galileo. This is a medieval thought experiment, sometimes called the tower. Uh, experiment. And, and that is, if the earth is moving either around the sun or spinning on its own axis, either way, um, and you dropped an object from a, from a tower, then as the earth moved, the object would fall way behind the base of the tower. Right. And it never does that. It always falls right down at the base. Right. And you can use a similar ship argument where if you're on a ship and the ship is sailing and you drop a ball, it'll fall behind the ship or where the tail end of the ship was. That's right. The tower, that, that's what the, 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 the equivalent tower argument would use. But Galileo says, no, no, it's not going to be like that at all. If you're, uh, if you're just inside the ship, you can't see out. You drop a ball, it'll land at your feet. Uh, and if you're moving over the sea at uh, 20 knots uh, and you drop a ball, it's still going to land at your feet either way. Right, and, right. And, and, and that's the, and then more general, of course, you just make the claim, the laws of nature are going to be the same in any inertial frame of reference. And that's the principle of relativity. That's Galileo's version. And it's the version, it's the only version we use. When Einstein um, uh, gave us uh, special relativity, he hung on to the principle of relativity because it was in danger 
it was in danger uh, from um, um, Maxwell's electrodynamics, which seemed to need a universal ether as if there was a single frame in which physics was correctly described. And, um, and, and a moving, a moving, anything that was moving in the ether frame, you wouldn't get the, the right uh, um, uh, results. That is, the, you'd have to take that into account. The laws of nature However, are, are Now let's get to Newton the with the absolute space in the bucket. So Newton yeah. had a thought experiment that demonstrated absolute space. Okay, so this is uh, another extremely famous thought experiment. And Newton For gave, this, I can show a diagram from the book or from any other place. I don't want to take from the copyright holder. No, no, no. Have you got it there? No, I mean, I'll show it when, we're, when I'm editing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can show it from my book. Don't worry. Sure. Yeah, I, you, I grant you permission. Thank you. I appreciate that. Okay. <laughs> now, um, so uh, Newton gave two versions of this. One was the bucket. Okay, and and so uh, the way the way you should think of it is you've got a bucket, um, and you can you can twist the rope, okay, and the and here's the bucket, and the water is very smooth on top, and you let the bucket go. And because and it's the, the only thing in the universe for this, for for the well for the bucket, there's all there's there's Newton and there's everything ar around. Okay, never mind. Let, let me do the bucket, and then I'll switch to the other one. Sure, right, sure, which sure. Is, which is the empty universe. Okay, so um, at first the water is flat and the bucket starts to rotate and gradually, so, so, and, and so initially, before anything happens, the water and the bucket are at rest with respect to one another. Then they start to rotate and they're rotating together, both the bucket and the water, and the water starts climbing the walls. And then you stop the bucket and the water still climbing, and, uh, and then it gradually subsides to flat again. Now the question is, how do we, how do we um, uh, explain the difference between the water and bucket being at rest initially, and the water's flat, and later on the water and bucket are at rest with respect to one another, but, but the water is concave, okay, the water is climbing up the walls. How do you explain the difference? And Newton says, okay, um, you know what's going to happen. Here's the explanation. In the first case, the water bucket system is not rotating with respect to space. And later, when the wall, water's climbing the walls, the whole system is rotating with respect to space itself. And then conclusion, therefore, space exists. It's not just, you know, something that... Um, you know, we're, we use as a convenience or something like that. Actually, let me go back and make sure, and, and people can figure out what their instinctive view is on this, sure. okay? This will be the difference between a Newtonian on the one hand and a Leibnizian relationalist on the other hand, okay? Question, if there was nothing in the whole universe, no object existed anywhere in the universe, would space still exist? Could space still exist? And I find that when I ask my students that question, about half of them say, yeah, empty space, no problem. There could be empty space. And the other half said, that's ridiculous. There couldn't be such a thing as empty space. If there's no objects, there's just no space, period. This sounds like the tree falling in the woods. 
Uh, space time version some connection to that. You're right. And there's a, and there's a, a, a counterpart to that for time. If I say to my class, okay, imagine that nothing ever happened. Everything was just frozen solid. Could time still pass? Half the class will say no, no events, no time. The other half will say, yeah, time's still passing, but nothing's happening. Very different instincts people have about this. And that one's also about 50-50? Yeah, roughly 50-50. Same people? The same? Oh, 50? yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. They're highly correlated. Okay. But, yeah. So if you think empty space makes sense, and you think time without events makes sense, you're a Newtonian. You're with Newton. And if you think that... Um, uh, no objects, no space, or no events, no time. You're an instinctive Leibnizian, a relationalist. That's and what about perfect. you? Uh, my instincts are mostly with Newton. It's also another thing that's interesting about this is that um, it, my class will be typically half physics, half philosophy students. It, it doesn't break along that line at all. Oh, interesting. Half, half the physicists are Newtonians in instinct, and half of them are Leibnizians. And the philosophy students exactly the same. Half of them are Newtonians, half of them are Leibnizian. Have you done this with mathematicians? I'm curious. Uh, split their half half. I do it. I do it with well. mathematicians. I do it with mathematicians for other things, and often that are philosophically interesting. And I am often surprised at the split in the mathematical audience exactly corresponds to the split in the philosophy audience. That is, you can't tell from someone's answer whether they're a mathematician or a philosopher. By the way, do you consider, are you a professor of philosophy of math or philosophy of physics or both? No, just philosophy. But my specialty inside is things like math and physics. I see, I see. This is some, okay. I mean, some philosophers are, you know, they specialize in the history of philosophy or in ethics and so on. I, math and physics are my specialties inside. As an aside, another aside, why did you end up choosing to go into the philosophy of math instead of math? Is it just purely based on what interested you or was there something else? That's a really interesting question. I think it was pretty much at, right at the beginning, like when you're a beginning undergraduate and you, so then you have to pick majors and stuff like that. I thought I can do anything in the world as a philosopher and no one will say, yeah, you're not doing philosophy anymore. Uh, one of my first questions for this that I wrote down is, has any philosophical question ever been solved? And this relates to that because <laughs> I'm curious to know. It's something I've been thinking about. I searched this on Google and it's not clear. The only one that I can think of is maybe Zeno's paradox with saying, well, you're, you're only accounting for finite time. But have any major philosophical problems ever been solved? Um, I'd be more confident in saying a lot of views have been decisively refuted. So there's a lot of people like, in philosophy saying, well, we don't know that we're, we're we know, we know that we're making progress in this limited sense that we now know certain things are false that we didn't know were false you know, 50 years ago or something like that. But I mean, there are lots of, I have lots of philosophical views uh, about which I'm fairly confident. And I think those might count. People would disagree with me, of course. Right. But there'd be a, there'd be a, some, 
significant number of people who would say, yeah, we think that's right. In so, defense of... Yeah, I mean, take one, of the, one of the most important and oldest is Plato's, um, Plato's refutation um, for the need for God in order to have objective ethics. It's in the dialogue called the Euthyphro. And it's a very simple little argument. And it doesn't, it doesn't refute the existence of God. It just says, no, no, no. Objective ethics, objective right and wrong, is completely independent from God. God's got nothing to do with it. It's a wonderful little argument. And um, if you are an atheist, you're happy with the conclusion. Right, we can have objective ethics. We don't need God. <clears throat> and if you do believe in God, you could say, well, I still believe in God and I believe in objective ethics. The intimate connection that I thought was there actually isn't there, but everything else is. Or wonderful. Or someone can reject the conclusion and say, yes, God can advocate for the murder of a child and that would still be good because God advocated for it. That's the essence of the Euthyphro argument because everyone will balk at that. And they'll, they think, they, they think uh, well, something is moral because God says so. And then right. you say, oh, yeah, so if he told you you had to, you had to rape every woman you can see, uh, then that would be a good thing to do. Is that what you believe? And no one will believe that. And then they realize that this is stupid. I can't. What I've been saying all along is a really stupid view. The most we can get out of God is God is a, a truthful reporter of objective moral rules. Like we can trust God to tell us what the moral rules are, but God isn't making them. They have to be independent. That's a really, it's a, it's a wonderfully interesting problem that's underappreciated. Uh, I think theologians, theologians don't, don't want to touch it. And there's another one that they even more don't want to touch. And that is um, um, how powerful God is. Um, the one about ethics is a lot like what Leibniz thought about God's power. You'd say, Leibniz, do you think God is all powerful? He'd say, you betcha. He can do anything. Descartes. Leibniz wouldn't say that though, because Leibniz would have a qualification, okay, which I'm going to give you in a second. Okay, okay. You say, Descartes, can God do everything? You say, you betcha, he can do anything. And then you say, well, can he make it rain? It's a sunny day right here. Can he make it rain? Sure, he can make it rain. Leibniz, could he make it rain? You betcha, he can make it rain, just like that. Um, and then you say to Descartes, could he make it rain and not rain simultaneously? Descartes would say, yes, he can even do that. I can't imagine what it would be like, but he can do it. And Leibniz would say, no, he can't do that. He can make it rain. He can make it not rain, but he can't pull off a contradiction. So God, God can do anything that's possible. That's God's power. Right. And, and, that, and, and the Leibniz view about what God can do in the physical realm is very much like uh, Leibniz, I think, would hold the same view about ethics. You know, God can advocate almost anything but god actually couldn't make murder okay god couldn't make torturing kittens morally okay he doesn't have that kind of power you know when we're talking about whether or not philosophical problems have been solved yeah. something i found online which it's funny it's the reason why philosophical problems have not been solved is that as soon as they have been solved they get relegated to something like physics or math for example, you know, physics was called natural philosophy before. Yeah. And then when we... No, that's a good, that's actually a really good point. The hardest problems stay in philosophy. The ones that are unsolvable stay in philosophy. As soon as they're solved, they get outside the realm of philosophy. And that's why philosophical problems seem to have never been solved. 
that's a really good point. Um, uh, in fact, that's how uh, a lot of philosophers think of their discipline as giving birth to the sciences. Once, once we sort something out, um, it, it takes off uh, a life of its own. Sometimes when I talk to hardcore physicists, they don't like to deal with concepts that are maybe, you might call them thick, although I might be using your terminology incorrectly. I might, I'm going to call them ambiguous, like, for example, consciousness or free will or... Yeah, yeah, those are... Metal, those are right, those right. Are, yeah. And they would just say, I don't know what it means. To, I don't know what that means. And so let me just stay with my rulers and protractors. But the philosophers are willing to deal with what seems meaningless and try and find meaning and then it's, and concretize what's ambiguous or disambiguate what's ambiguous. And then it yes. goes into another realm. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I don't particularly like the, the this, it, there's a dismissal that, and an arrogance that comes from the purely mathematical and purely physical professors that I've spoken to where they don't want to deal with certain concepts that seem, that are ill-defined. They'll just say, well, I, I don't deal with that. And that's meaningless. And so you can pursue that, but that's a religious pursuit to even talk about consciousness or, or what it means to die or what, it, what does life mean? Well, uh, yeah, that seems rather short-sighted because uh, so many, I mean, I, I can understand them saying, uh, I, I don't want to deal with consciousness as a physicist. Uh, I'm very happy to talk about it um, and think about it and reflect on it. It's, it's probably outside the realm of physics. I'm also very interested to talk about politics and how we should organize society, but I wouldn't Derive it from the Schrodinger equation. Exactly. Right. Okay. Now the bucket. Okay. So anyway, the, the bucket, um, the, the, uh, Newton's final conclusion, okay. Water still initially water concave at the end. What's the difference explanation. The bucket is not rotating. Then the bucket is rotating with respect to space itself. And therefore space exists. It's meant to be, an argument for the existence of space as a thing in its own right. Space, as well as all these material objects all around us, there is also space. It's an extra thing. Leibniz said that's rubbish. There's nothing to space except um, the relations among physical things. Get rid of the physical things, there's nothing left over. There's no so space. Leibniz didn't agree with the conclusion of the thought experiment or he just didn't get presented with this thought experiment? No, that's, that's really a good point. Um, they had a wonderfully interesting correspondence back and forth. It's called the Leibniz-Clark correspondence because Clark is very close to Newton. We don't really know whether Clark was simply taking dictation from Newton. He might have been. Or he might have just talked to Newton about how to formulate answers. But there's about six letters back and forth between them. And they keep getting longer and longer. Uh, Leibniz died. It never, it never came to an end. It just, Leibniz just unfortunately died. Um, and Leibniz has wonderful answers to a whole lot of stuff that uh, Newton talks about. Uh, but Leibniz you know, is a brilliant, brilliant person. When oh, people are talking about the luminaries, they mention Einstein and Newton. But Leibniz is, to me, on the same category of Newton. Oh, he is. He's unquestionably one of the all-time spectacular greats. Yeah. Yeah. Universal great. He's just brilliant in everything. 
Yeah. Okay. 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 So anyway, okay. but but uh, that's the bucket. But you see, Newton um, Newton then said, gave a second version. It's the same argument, but this is the really interesting one. So uh, he says, uh, you imagine two spheres connected by a, a cord or a rod or something, a cord, make it a cord or an elastic. And he says, um, uh, there, there's a tension in the elastic, okay, it's stretched. Um, the material- Wait, sorry, sorry. Is this in your thought experiment book as well that I can place I think in the it image is. for? It, okay. I think it is. It'll be in the same place. Okay, I'm just trying to visualize it right now. It, I'm visualizing something like a It looks, a, like, a dumbbell. It looks okay. like a dumbbell, okay? So you got the two spheres, and they could be made out of some massive thing. They could be wood. Sure. They, they don't attract or repel. But there's a tension, okay? The cord is stretched. Okay, okay, okay. How could you explain this? There's nothing in the universe. It's an empty universe. How do you explain it? Newton says, easy. The whole thing is rotating. And you see uh, the, the, the individual objects try to move in straight lines. They try to move inertially, and hence they're, it's stretching the, uh, the cord between them. And that's how you account for it. Well, what's the cause of this inertial motion? Space itself. Space is the source of inertial motion and inertial forces and stuff like that. This is the, if, now if you're, if you're, um, if you're someone like Leibniz, you're going to have real problems with this. Because space, see, for Newton, space has real properties. It can cause things. It causes things to move in straight lines. That's why if you throw an object, no force on it, it'll move in a straight line. It's space that sort of it guides it, as it were, that way. Okay. And if there were no space, um, it, there'd be no accounting for why it moves in a straight line rather than just at random. Uh -huh. Leibniz, Leibniz died before he could really tackle that issue. And he, who knows, he might have even been won over by it. You wanted to know about how Einstein reacted to this. this right. Is, Einstein changed his mind, but early on, and this is at the, in the very first uh, couple of pages in the in the paper on general relativity. For the audience, just to clarify, the Newton bucket experiment demonstrated, at least for Newton, the presence of absolute space. That's right. Space is a thing in its own right. Yeah. Um, what, what, um, what Einstein does is he, he, re he rejects the whole setup. So he imagines two spheres that are rotating with respect to one another. And one is perfectly spherical, and the other one's uh, a kind of um, 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 an ellipse of revolution. Okay, so it's elongated at its okay. Uh, equator. Okay, just like our Earth spinning on its axis, it's a little wider at the equator. So Einstein imagines these two things uh, in an otherwise empty space. And he says, how can you explain this? And then he says, you can't, you must appeal to distant matter and the presence of, this is, this is really Mach's um, answer to all of this. You must appeal to uh, distant matter that you can ex experience, you can see it. And, uh, and one of the uh, objects, the, the ellipse of revolution, um, that object, not the spherical one, but that object is rotating with respect to that distant mass. So it's not space itself that causes inertial motion. It's the presence of a 
Billions of the distribution. Okay. All over the and universe. Let me see if I have this correct because I, I don't recall this. So are you, is what you're saying something like, we don't know if we're rotating unless we see stars rotating above us? Yeah. Or is this completely, is it? That's is Einstein. That, That's Einstein. Yeah. Okay. What about the centripetal force or centrifugal force? So what does he yeah. say about that? We wouldn't says, feel it unless. Caused, it's not caused by rotation with respect to space. It's caused by rotation with respect to distant matter. In fact, this is Mark. Um, Mark's, Mark made an empirical claim about this. And I don't think it's very practical, so no one can ever do it. But Mark said, imagine that you did Newton's bucket. In a bucket where the, where the walls of the bucket were several miles thick. Okay. Okay. So imagine them 100 miles thick. Mm -hmm. incredible mass and then you and you rotate this thing <laughs> yeah okay so in newton's bucket when you rotate it the wall the water starts to climb the wall yeah Locke said if you've got enough mass in the bucket itself uh-huh the water would stay level uh-huh therefore it's not rotation with respect to space it's rotation with respect to external masses ah, ah, aha, so this aha. Is the, the bucket because itself it depends on that becomes i see the, yeah but I'm you, gonna see, read. you need you need such a big bucket you know you couldn't you couldn't you couldn't ask the government to to pay for this experiment they would be they would be turfed out of power in the next election when the when the population got wind of it in your thought experiment book you fractionate into two there's constructive destructive types of yeah. thought experiments and then con and then constructive conjectural and so on did you come up with that or was that something you found um there's a little bit in the uh, um well I, I should tell you when when i when i first decided let me back up a little more when i first heard about the galileo thought experiment of the falling bodies i thought that's the most wonderful thing i'd ever heard and then after i got tenure i thought Okay, they can't fire me now. Return. I'm going to do what I wanted to do for a long time, and that's start thinking about thought experiments. And there was virtually no literature on it. There's, you know, people make the odd offhand remark. And of course, there are lots of thought experiments floating around, but nobody had ever written about it in. I could call it. Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? 
Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. What's their nature? You know, how do they work and stuff like that? And I was shocked that I could read uh, almost everything that had ever been written about thought experiments in a long weekend. It was almost nothing, a bit by Mark and a bit by, you know, a, a few other people, and that's it. And um, so the, the few people who had commented on it usually divided things up into the positive, negative kind of thought experiment. Thought, thought experiments which, you know, get, try to give you a new theory versus thought experiments which just destroy an old theory, Okay. So Schrodinger's cat is a negative thought experiment in the sense that it's just supposed to undermine standard quantum mechanics. Um, but other, other thought experiments like, like Heisenberg's gamma ray microscope, which gives you the uncertainty principle, that's more uh, positive, give you a, a new positive result type thought experiments. So that, that was a, a beginning of a taxonomy, you know, there. Then I, then I just fine tuned it a little bit. Okay, you fine-tuned only the constructive part. Well, the destructive part goes down to direct. So it's like, I don't recall yeah, yeah. what direct there's, was. There's, there's, and then one of the constructives goes down to direct as well. Yeah, um, I, I think, I can't remember now whether I, I mean, there were some distinctions I didn't bother making, but might have made in passing when I was describing that taxonomy. Um, the negative thought experiments, I, I might have, put them, lump them all together is just negative. Yeah. Um, there's probably uh, an important difference between uh, negative thought experiments that follow from the theory itself, which just shows that they're internally incoherent, uh, and negative thought experiments which show a clash between uh, a theory and other more or less established knowledge. So I, I could fine tune there, and you could probably make more distinctions. Um, anytime you're setting up a, tech, uh, a taxonomy, there's a kind of balance between, you know, to what extent can this be simplified and enlightening? And to what extent do you go into so much detail, it just becomes, you get lost in, you get lost in the detail. Have you so, been keeping up with theories of everything? There's been a couple of new ones this year. Yeah. A little bit. Have you read up on Wolfram's or Eric Weinstein's? No, uh, Wolfram, Wolfram's views, uh, he just thinks that the world is an automaton and um, uh, he, he sees digital computers as answering all questions. I, I'm, I'm still sufficiently wedded to continuity in a lot of places that I don't, I think digitizing things is, is only a nifty approximation and uh, good for solving a lot of practical problems, but I don't think it's going to reveal the, the deeper truth. I may be wrong. I may be wrong. Right. Um, I have uh, physics friends who do believe that space-time is discrete. Yep. And uh, if they're right, then understanding the world in as a gigantic digital computer um, that makes uh, that becomes a little more plausible.
Now, you definitely should read that paper that you sent me, which I thought that you knew Nicholas Jessen and you were completely familiar with his work. But anyway, just for the audience member. I, 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 did read, I read it at the time. I, remember say, I do remember sending it to you, but I just completely forgot it. Okay. Would I'm you, just going to give a bit of background. Would you do me a great favor? Yes. Send it if you, if you yeah, have, yeah. If you and I'll it. send you a lecture from him because it's, it's wonderful. Okay. He has, Nicholas Jessen is a physicist who was answering a question that I was curious about, which is why I asked Jim here. I said, hey, is there any other logical foundation of physics other than classical logic? Because I'm wondering, I'm always I'm curious, like what's holding us back from theories of everything? And I'm, I'm trying to tackle it from as many angles as I, as I can. And so I thought maybe this is one. And you said, well, there is this person named Nicholas Jessen who thinks that intuitionist logic is a way to go. And uh, when right, I read right. that. Now I'm getting, um, now it's coming back. Yes, yes. Right. Okay. And so what he was saying, he has a few different reasons for believing that, first of all, real numbers aren't real. And the reason for this is to say, is because there's only a finite amount of information that can be in any finite volume. So let's say it's a real number. If it's an arbitrary real number, then it's going to collapse into a black hole if for whatever reason the particle somehow carries that information with it. Yeah. Okay, well, you can leave and leave that aside. He says that all of deterministic physics, like classical physics, yeah. actually is completely compatible with an indeterministic view. Forget about quantum mechanics. And the reason is that all we can do is test it to a certain precision. Let's say yeah. 30 decimal places. Yeah. That's being a little bit generous, but let's say 30 decimal sure. places for yeah. classical physics. Then you can easily construct indeterminate, mm, indeterminate functions. So here's one. I can't say it because... It, I, I can't say it. I would just have to write the function out. But let's say you have the real line, so zero to one, and then you, you somehow stretch the real line, and then you cut the real line in half. I'll have to tell you what the function is. But either way, that real line, you can describe any number as zero point B1, B2, B, like the digits of... Yeah. Okay, great. What that function effectively does is remove the first digit. So instead of it being zero point B1, B2, B3, it's zero point B2, B3, B4. Okay, now given that, given that, let's say finite, let's say non-real numbers are completely compatible with classical physics because we don't know where the end of the error bar effectively gives a, a real number or if it's just cut off. You understand, you understand what I'm saying. Sorry oh, yeah, if, I'm, yeah, yeah. if I'm not explaining yep. it correctly. Okay, given that, then we can have these simple systems that actually are not just chaotic because we don't have sufficient information, but because within it, it genuinely is indeterminate. For example, that function. Like, if you just choose an arbitrary... Okay, so you get the idea. Okay, so then he was saying that indeterminacy is not incompatible with classical physics, even though we like to think of classical physics as being a determinate theory. You can't, it's, so then he goes on to say, calling physics deterministic or indeterministic is not a scientific question because both models predict the exact same reality that we see classically, forget about quantum mechanics. And then he goes on to make a connection between that and free will. He's a proponent of free will, much like yourself. And he says it can be saved. The, the libertarian version of free will, not the compatibilist, that is that I choose from the possible world. Oh, anyway, that's extremely intriguing to me. Like, one, So I yeah. thank you so much for that. And I'm going to talk to Nicholas about that. 
Good. Uh, that, that, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you got so much out of it. My instincts are to uh, disagree uh, quite strongly. Um, to start with, I'm a, a, a realist and a Platonist about math, not a constructivist, not an intuitionist. So I think all those decimal expansion to infinity, it exists, um, but it exists in Plato's heaven. So I don't know how he's, I don't know where black holes would come in unless he's trying to physicalize the numbers. And then the decimal representation would require an infinite amount of ink in a very small space and collapse into a black hole. Some, no, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of joking and saying- Yeah, that. I understand. I but, understand. But, the, but the thing is, um, I think uh, you need real numbers, irrational real numbers, in uh, in physics, um, think of try try to imagine doing physics without pi, which is uh, an irrational number. Okay, it's got an infinite decimal expansion. Try to try to imagine doing physics without um, the square root of two. Square root of two comes up all over the place in just in quantum mechanics. You've got a, a two-stage system. You know, it can it could be an up or a down, and you describe the state as one over root two up plus one over root two down. And then to get the probability, you square that. So square one over root two squared is one becomes one half. And that, of course, you can measure accurately, but you're gonna always represent it as one over root two. You're, you're gonna have to appeal to these. Now he may say, ah, but I'm only appealing to an approximation of one over root two. Like I only need five, if I went right. five decimal places. Um, and so I'm really, it's really a rational number. That's all I need for complete empirical adequacy. It would be hard to argue with him over that. Um, I think my, my best argument against him would be the utter simplicity of the real numbers as opposed to truncating them and turning them into uh, uh, rational numbers to do physics. Mm -hmm. but, but from an empirical point of view, I may have to concede that there's not going to be uh, any uh, empirical distinction right between the two right okay i'm going to read from your book oh before i get to that you did mention that there are some examples of non-platonic forms of mathematical realism i i can't conceive of that so do you mind expounding you said you said that mill or kitcher kitcher yes that's right or oh yes Irving. yes 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 sure okay uh, he um um Mill is the easy, he's the classic example. So he's, he'd be, you'd call him a mathematical realist. Almost right, everybody. This, who, which Mill is this? Uh, John Stuart Mill. Okay. Okay. Almost everybody who's a mathematical realist uses realism, Platonism, roughly interchangeably. I mean, they might, they might want to make some fine distinctions. Yeah. Uh, and that's because almost everybody who is a realist is happy to be called a Platonist. But there is, Mill is a mathematical realist who is absolutely not a Platonist. Yeah. So for Mill, numbers are really just um, a kind of abstraction from the physical realm. They're part of the physical realm, a bit like colors. So when I say two plus two equals four, I'm actually talking about physical stuff. So two apples, it's, it's just a short form for a more general it's a generalization of two apples plus two apples equals four apples, two liters of water plus two liters of water is four liters of water, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. I, just, I just simplify it to two plus two equals four. But it is learned empirically and it's about the physical empirical world. 
that's mill. Mm. Okay. Um, Frege made a lot of fun of him. Uh, nobody believes Bill. They, they think it's a preposterous view. Uh, but you see how it's realist in the sense that it's about reality and it's meant to be literally true. Yeah, I just don't see how it's not Platonistic. So can you help me out? Because if it's saying that the generalities are true, what does he mean by true? Where do they exist? So if you're saying well, that... If I, said, if I said these apples are red. Yeah. Okay, that's a straightforward empirical realm. Uh, the, the, the fact that they're red... Wavelength, sure, sure. Right? Right here, this is this is it. And if I said these two apples and these two apples make four apples, it, it's all about what's right here. Okay, there's nothing about Plato's heaven in that. It's all right here. Okay. It's just, it's just that when I say two plus two equals four, without reference to apples or liters of water or 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 chocolate biscuit mm -hmm. or anything mm -hmm. like that, um, it's it's a it's kind of abstracted from, but it's really about the physical realm. Ah, 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 okay. So and, let me see if it, I get the difference. Okay. Okay. The Platonist would say, you're reflecting some other truer world. And Mill would say, you're predicated on this world. It's true, but it's dependent on this world, not some other world. Is that what you mean? Yeah, but Mill, Mill would say, and there's no other world. It's just this one. Um, uh, the closest I can think of for an analogy would be talking about colors. So, I mean, I can say this apple is red, that banana is yellow, um, but I can say at a slightly more abstract level, but I'm still here in the world, red plus yellow make orange. See, I'm, I'm, I'm still here in the empirical yeah. world. Okay? Yeah, I see. Even though I'm not talking about a particular apple or a particular banana, but red plus yellow make orange. So why is that ridiculous? Why is Mills, what well, you said that Mill is laughed at by Frege and many other mathematicians that well, come later, if, philosophers. If the, universe, if the universe is finite, if, if, if we thought it was, was finite, if we're just standard Big Bang, the universe is finite. There's only finitely many elementary particles in it. There's only finitely many things in it. That means there's a biggest number. And I say, oh, well, let's call it N. Biggest number. That's it. I say, well, what about n plus one? Do you think n plus one is bigger than n? And of course you'd say, of course it is. And Mill doesn't know how, what's Mill gonna say? There's no such number as n plus one. You're just making it up. I see. Okay? And so it just seems preposterous. We believe there are infinitely many prime numbers, infinitely many numbers. Mill doesn't know actually what to do with this if the universe is finite. If the world, if the universe is infinite, he got lucky. And maybe he can get around that problem. But why, he's going to have a lot of problems. Why does the universe being finite mean that there has to be a finite conceptual number? Because even if, with if the... Think, if you think of numbers, if you think of numbers as... As, uh, uh, as ref with reference to the physical, to the physical universe, world. Right. Okay. So if you think okay. of them as, as independently existing in Plato's heaven, no problem. The world could be the world could just cease to exist, and still all all those all those things in Plato's heaven would be just fine. Could you still not save it by saying, for example, right now on my desktop I have a few items, and then there's a there's n factorial way of, well, not your n, but the little little case n way yeah. factorial way of, of, of arranging them, and then you just keep adding. So no matter yeah. what, even when you ha okay. 
Yeah, yeah, you can keep doing the combinatorics um, ad nauseum, but you're still never going to break out of the finite realm. Because let's say we, okay, <laughs> I'm just trying to gra grapple with this. So let's say we've, we come up with large N, so that's your N. Then I say, well, let's still permute that a bit more. And then we get N factorial, the big N factorial. Yep. And then we say, well, that's a maximum. Then we just factorial again, and we still get infinity. So we still get any possible but, number but, can but be reached with for, this, no? For mill, they have to be tied somehow to the empirical world. Remember, he's, he's a staunch imperial, uh, empiricist, and he doesn't like Platonism. He doesn't like abstract entities. So um, if I had, um, if I have two apples, if, uh, if I have two apples, ah, I, guess, okay. I can say, okay, one, two, and then I can bunch them together and say, I can say, now that's a third object. Okay. So he would have a, he would have a problem with possibilities. The reason why yeah, I'm saying yeah, that yeah, is... Yeah, 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 that's right. You can't so They have to be concrete. I have to be measuring four apples. I could say that possibly you can arrange them in eight, but that's because there exists something else that's I can concretize as eight. Sure. Okay, okay. okay. That's right. Okay, I get it, I get it. Now I'm going to read the last part of, of your book, which I found wonderful. You say this, my suggestion is very simple. Distant correlations are caused by the laws of nature. I realize this almost sounds silly. One wants to say the correlations are the laws of nature, but this, if you recall in the preceding chapters, is not true. A law of nature is an independently existing abstract entity, a thing in its own right, which is responsible for physical regularities. Okay, now this was in regards to something called the entanglement of Bell's inequality, but we can forget about that. What you're suggesting is that the physical laws themselves are akin to entities. And I haven't heard that expressed before. And I think that's going to take me maybe, maybe weeks or months to, to fully apprehend and, and perhaps even contribute some of my own ideas to. It's a, it's a brazen statement and I'm, and I'm a fan of audacity. So can you expound on this? <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm not sure. I, I wrote that quite a while ago and my views on quantum mechanics are constantly in flux. So I'm not sure I would uh, agree with that in particular. However, with the general idea, I certainly still, uh, um, I still think that is true. So let me explain um, what I'm trying to get at. For most philosophers, they really, really like David Hume. David Hume has a view about the nature of causation and the nature of laws of nature, which is very empiricist. Okay? And what it really amounts to is that a law of nature is nothing but uh, an empirical regularity. So if I say um, um, all ravens are black, or it's a law of nature that ravens are black, what it just means is that um, uh, every time I see a raven, it's black. Mm. That's it. That's all there is to it. Um, it's just so the Hume does away with causation. Yeah, causation is like that too. Um, um, Fire, is, fire feels hot. Every time I stick my hand in a fire, it feels hot. Um, the heat doesn't cause the pain. It's just correlated with the pain. Okay, every time I stick my hand in the fire, I feel pain. Um, it's, just, it's just this regularity. There's nothing more to causation than the regularity. There's nothing more to a law of nature than a regularity. So if I said, explain why this raven is black, Hume would have to say, um, all ravens are black. This is a raven, therefore this is black. That's the only explanation he can give. 
his laws of nature are really just summaries of what we experience. They can't really explain anything. They don't have any explanatory. So they're, they're like data points and then generalizations. Points and then, and then the, the law is nothing but uh, a summary of the data points. Okay. Yeah. There's no, there's no explanatory power there. Okay. okay. Now, uh, if you're a staunch empiricist, you're happy with that. You say science is in the business of, of organizing experience and predicting experience, but we're not in the business of actually explaining things. Okay. Mm -hmm. Forget explanation. That's not our business. Okay. Um, I hate that view. I think we're in the business of explaining and understanding and stuff like that. So a lot of hard-nosed empiricists would call me, oh, it's just mushy, sentimental nonsense. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I'm sticking to my sentimentality. And I want understanding and I want explanations and so on. So here's an alternative view of laws of nature. Laws of nature are not just regularities. They're actually connections between properties. So I'll stick to the Raven example, even though it's, it's probably a poor example, but it's okay. very easy to understand and illustrate. So when I say, uh, so there's properties, Raven, there's the property of Ravenhood. Okay. That is the property of being a Raven. Being a member of a ra of the set of Ravens is Ravenhood? Sure. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And there's the property of being black. Okay. Okay. So okay. the law of nature is not the regularity that all Ravens are black. The law of nature is that the property of being a raven is connected to the property of being black. And that, then that, that's the law of nature. And that law of nature forces the regularity that all ravens are black. It's the law that explains why the raven is black. Why is, why is this raven black? It's a raven, it has the property of ravenhood and that necessitates the property of blackness. Okay. Okay. That's, that's, that's it. I mean, it, it sounds, it sounds like hokey nonsense, but the thing is you're actually um, introducing something new in the world um, over and above the mere regularity. And that has okay. explanatory power. Okay. So the way that I'm thinking about this is that there's a set of all black objects and then Ravens are a subset of that, but I don't see what, what's different no, than what they'll, Hugh they'll, is saying. There'll be a property, a property of Ravenhood and a property of blackness. And it's not just a coincidence, but, but there's a kind of what's sometimes called a gnomic connection. Uh, this is like a physical necessity uh, between the property of Ravenhood and the property of uh, blackness. There's a gnomic necessity between the property of electronhood and negative charge. Okay. Okay. It's okay. not just, it's not just a, a, an accidental correlation. There's something deep. Yeah. I, and, I guess I, what, I, what I'm having trouble is I'm for an electron. It's like we define it as that, which has this, if we found an electron with a, with negative two instead of negative one, we wouldn't call it an electron. We call it something else. Probably that's true. Um, but, that, but that's, uh, um, that's a that's that's an evidential thing uh, uh, of course all of this is fallible when i say all ravens are black it's a law of nature that ravens are black could be mistaken we could we could find in madagascar 
you know, ravens that are uh, green or something yes, like that. Yes, yes, yes. But you're saying, okay, hypothetically, so I'm trying to get, I'm trying to understand this. So hypothetically, you're saying there that a property of Ravenhood is that it's black. Okay. Okay. So what does this have to do with, sorry, what does this have to do with causality? Um, uh, okay. So, um, uh, let me, let me back up and make, and make this view of laws of nature a bit more plausible sure. as against the Hume view. So you see Hume view, it's just a regularity that all ravens are black. Now let us suppose you're, you're doing this video from your house, right? Or your apartment. Let's suppose that every human being who's ever been in that apartment has worn socks. Okay. Yeah. So is it a law of nature that everyone who enters Kurt's apartment wears socks? Is that mm -hmm. a law of nature? Mm -hmm. In this house it is. doesn't sound like <laughs> no. a law of nature, but it's a regularity. And that apartment might be blown up tomorrow so that in its entire history, it was always true. Every time someone entered that apartment, they wore socks. See, oh, that's not a law of nature. That's just one of those accidents. How can I distinguish a genuine law of nature, which is a regularity for Hume, yep. from these accidental things? Hume has no answer. There's no way you can separate the two. But if you believe that laws of nature are properties, then I would say it's, it's um, the law of nature uh, about ravens being black. The property of ravenhood necessitates the property of blackness. Okay. However, the property of entering Kurt's apartment mm -hmm. does not necessitate the property where socks. That was just contingent. That was just That's accident. right. And you. so now, you know, it's still uh, empirical science has to discover what are the accidental regularities versus mm -hmm, what, are the, mm -hmm. what are the laws that can be really hard. But the thing is, there is a metaphysical difference between the two. And Hume hasn't got a metaphysical difference between the two. It's just, wow, it's just a big coincidence. Okay, so now what does that have to do with, with causation is just the flip coin of laws of nature. So it is the law of nature that A's are B's is the same as A's cause B's. Yes. Yeah. What, what I'm curious about, what I found most fascinating was that it was as if you're saying E equals MC squared is, it's like an object itself that comes in and influences the world. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's hard to figure out what, what the law of nature would be. I mean, I can say it's a law of nature E equals MC squared. Um, it may be hard to figure out, uh, putting it in these metaphysical terms, the property of energy and how it's related to the property of mass and the property of speed of light and, and stuff like that. But they'll, they'll, on this view, there would be such a relation, a relation of necessitation between energy as a property and mass as a property. Have you heard of Lee Smolin's principle of precedence? I know him well, and I have heard of it, and I have forgotten what it is. Remind okay, me. it's it's something like that. One of the reasons the electron collapses in the way that it does, or that sorry, this explains decoherence. I believe that the reason why a large object collapses is because by chance somewhere else in the universe a large object has collapsed in a similar manner, and it's felt at some other part of the universe. The patterns are felt, and so they collapse similarly. And that explains 
some of the regularities to use that word. Okay, that's uh -huh. the principle. Um, I I don't know what to say about that. Um, I should I sh I just gonna I'm just gonna have to go and and and, and review. Right, it. right, right, right. Well, what I was wondering is I'm curious if that merges both Platonist and non-Platonist because it's as if it's formulating something that's true and putting it into this world that we now look to to represent reality. But it was, uh, it was would, being invented at some point. So yeah, yeah. invention and no, discovery. That's, that's, that's interesting the way you put it. I'm inclined to think it's not because, uh, as I say, I know him quite well and we argue over uh, the issue of Platonism all the time. He's very anti-Platonist. Yeah. Um, many Are physicists generally anti-Platonist and mathematicians no, are pro? No, no. They're a mixed bag on it. Um, they're all over the place. Um, most most working physicists, I would say, don't have strong views about the nature of mathematics. They're, for them, it's a tool. They use it. Uh, they just sort of grab it out of the tool bag, use what they want, and don't have philosophical views about it. They, if you, if they work in fundamental physics, as Lee Smolin does, he has very strong philosophical views about the nature of physics. You know, is, is he a realist? Is he, you know, what, and so on. He's unquestionably a scientific realist when it comes to physics, but he's an anti-realist when it comes to mathematics. Interesting. Same with um, uh, Carlo Rovelli, who uh, 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 Smolin and Rovelli uh, often work together. Mm -hmm. uh, Rovelli's, uh, I've gotten to know Rovelli quite well because he now lives in London here. He's my neighbor. Oh, cool, cool. Um, and he's, uh, he's unquestionably a scientific realist when it comes to physics, um, but hostile to Platonism. But this is true for both Ravelli and Smolin. They can't quite put their finger on what it is they dislike about Platonism so much. So they're not winning the argument yet. So it's just an, a feeling that they have, that they dislike it because it has a mystical quality to it? Not sure. Okay, Jim, thank you again so much. I appreciate it. Oh, a great pleasure. Do you think we can derive an is from an ought or an ought from an is? That's a really hard question. Uh, the, the simple answer is no. Um, because one is an, an imperative sentence and the other is a declarative sentence. I mean, just logically, grammatically, they're, they're going to be different kinds of things. We can come close. Um, How can we come close? We, well, we can come close in the sense that... Let me, let me actually back up and talk about it in a very indirect way, okay? Um, there's a traditional view that there's a distinction between facts and values. It's the same thing. There, there's just a cleavage between the two. And science is totally concerned with the facts. Mm -hmm. And morality and maybe religion and, and other things could be concerned with values. The trouble with that view is that um, too many things in science, it's messy. Um, there are all kinds of values, even in just doing science itself. So, for instance, I can tell you about how to find out an infinitude of facts and maybe one of them you might be interested in. So, what is the distance between the tip of my nose and the center of mass of the sun? Now, I'm going to move 
<laughs> no, I can ask you about the center of mass of your nose yeah. and the center of mass of that guy out on the street from his nose to the center of mass of the moon. You could measure all of those things and they would all be factually correct if you measured correctly. But after one or two of these, you, that's enough. And you're going to make a value choice that pursuing more of these is not worthwhile and that there are other things that are more valuable. So all facts aren't on a par. Some are clearly uh, better than others. And, and you as a scientist are going to make these kinds of value judgments all the time. And you're going to make methodological value judgments, which are even more important. Like you're going to say, okay, I've got two theories here. Which one should I believe? Oh, this one's simpler. Well, that's actually a value judgment that simplicity is to be preferred mm -hmm. to complexity when you're talking about scientific theories. So right away, so all right, so we've got these two theories. I choose this one on the basis of simplicity. And now, now I say, oh, well, the facts according to this theory are different than the facts according to that theory. What are the facts? Well, I've just decided on this theory. So now I found out what the facts are. But it is, it is value laden in the sense that I've chosen this theory on the basis of its simplicity. Mm -hmm. So you see how the, the values begin to, yep. to, to, uh, to infect the, um, the facts themselves. And once you get into fairly sophisticated science and, met, and you're making methodological choices about how to pursue this, you'll find that there's all kinds of values that are getting tied up in there and it's very, very hard to disentangle them. So in essence, no, it's not possible to derive an ought from an is. That's right, you can't. On the other hand, the more important question is, can you disentangle your oughts from your ises? And the answer to that question is, I think, no. And so now making a big fuss about the distinction between is and ought is probably a bad idea. So when you're looking at another scientist, don't ask, just give me the facts. Because a good scientist wouldn't be able to who had a sophisticated view of this issue, would not be able to tell you what are the clear facts and how much the facts as presented, in fact, depended upon value decisions made along the history, the whole history of science up to that point. Now, that doesn't mean you can just say, well, I'm a racist, I'm proud of my values, and I'm, going to, and I'm going to let that guide my research, you know, from here on in. You can't get away with that stuff, though lots of people try. But I do mean that there's going to be a lot of values that you're not even aware of. And they have, um, they have been sprinkled through the entire history of science up until the present day. And it'll continue to be like that. What's your problem with Sam Harris? You said that you have some... Uh, he's a militant atheist, as am I. You are a militant atheist. A militant atheist. Uh, so I have no trouble with Sam Harris on that front. The only thing I dislike about Sam Harris, and oh, by the way, he was the voice of reason uh, in his uh, discussion with uh, Jordan Peterson. So you agreed with him there? Oh, completely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, much more than I was expecting because I, I've seen Sam Harris before and he, he sort of irritates me. You don't like his views on... Okay, uh, uh, well, you see, there's a lot of militant uh, atheists and often they're condemned as a group. Uh, Hitchens, uh, Dawkins, you know, Dennett. and Harris, Dennett, and um, and Sam Harris, um, but it, Harris Harris worries me unlike the others, um, and the thing that worries me is that he has a special hatred for Muslims. I don't. I think Muslims have 
ridiculous religious views, just like Christians have ridiculous religious views, as do Hindus and Buddhists and so on. They're all just ridiculous. But, um, but I think, in, especially in this age, in the current conditions, to, to, for anyone to pick on Muslims, uh, especially in the United States, it's, um, it's bordering on, you know, a kind of um, a, a real bigotry that uh, is, is worse than unhealthy. What if you're just criticizing Islam and not the Muslim people themselves? Uh, this is tricky. Um, you can criticize Islam, except that there are, Islam is actually the belief held by people, so you can't criticize Islam without criticizing um, people who are, who are Muslim. Maybe that's one of the problems, is that intellectuals, like yourself, like I, we like to debate ideas, and it's difficult to detach our egos from the ideas, but we know that, okay, when a better idea comes along, we adopt that and we take a little hit to the ego, but we're different than our ideas. Yeah. So there is a separation between the people and then the uh, uh, sure, sure, uh, and I have no no trouble with that. The trouble is when you're talking to in a, in a mass media and talking to a mass audience, and you start railing against Islam, it just spills over to a dislike of that guy who's sitting next to you who happens to be a Muslim. Yeah, so I don't trust him. Um, I so so I, I just want to make sure I understand yeah. it. So something like when you criticize Islam, it's easily construed as criticizing Muslim people, and then the effects of you criticizing Islam is that other people aren't going to look at Muslim people right. with a negative light. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I don't like uh, Islam any more than I like Christianity. But if I had a, a company and I'm going to hire people, I'm not going to discriminate against Muslims. Yeah, right. I wouldn't hire a Christian over a Muslim. Right, that right. seems to me to be just grotesque bigotry. Right. I would hire an atheist over anybody. Yeah. <laughs> but, but when it comes to religions, uh, I, I think if you're going to criticize them, criticize so them. So all, all religions are equal in that they're all equally Equally uh, uh, groundless. And, yeah. I think, they've done, I think religion is one of the worst things that's ever happened to us. Humanity, mm -hmm. yeah, done a great deal of harm. Okay, let's no. get to Platonism. Let's okay. get to Platonism because this is your domain. This is what okay. you are. So let's explain what Platonism is, and then let's give people a test so that they can find out if they're a Platonist or not. <laughs> All right. Well, when I uh, when I teach topics related to this, I usually ask my my, my students on the very at the very beginning whether they think mathematics is discovered or invented. Is it discovered like physics, or is it invented like the game of chess? And I'll get very mixed reactions. What is it, 50-50? No, I'd say more on the discovery side, but a very sizable number on the invention side. Let's say two-thirds, one-third, something like that. And, um, and then I tell them things that often surprise them, and that is that working mathematicians are overwhelmingly Platonists. That is, a Platonist is very briefly, believes that mathematics is there waiting to be discovered. It's independent from us. Uh, mathematical facts would be true even if no one ever discovered them, even if there were no intelligent creatures in the entire history of the universe. Pi would still be an irrational number. Um, on the other hand, chess would not exist if there were no intelligent beings. Okay? Uh, most working mathematicians, now you, you were a math student, so you may have picked this up from your teachers. Most working mathematicians are, in fact, Platonists. They believe that 
when they do mathematical research, they're investigating something that's there, waiting to be discovered. And if they get it right, they have discovered something new. Okay, so that's, that's Platonism. A, that's, a, that's Platonism in a nutshell. And you're a Platonist. I am a Platonist. So what does it mean to exist? What does that mean? Because I actually consider myself to be a Platonist. I would actually think that the game of chess does exist in some form in the, fact, in, in the sense that there are these rules, and game theoretically, you can construct a model of yeah, chess, and yeah. so that in, in you can, if you can sense, form a mathematical even, model of it, yeah. then it exists. You're right. You're right. Uh, so my example, you can fuss with my example, and but it's just meant to be a crude example yeah, for then, for getting can initial. We not, can we not then story. extrapolate it and say that everything that possibly is logical exists? Well, the, there is a view um, about possible worlds. Okay, so um, whenever we speak in a certain mode, like I say, there are no elephants in this room, mm -hmm. but it is possible that there is an elephant in this room. It's not actual, mm -hmm. but it is possible. What does that mean? Hmm? Right now. <laughs> what does that even mean? Well, one view says you have to understand reality as made up of possible worlds. The actual world is one world, and another world there's another world that's almost exactly like this one. There's a counterpart. Is I'm it I'm in the it. Multiverse theory of quantum mechanics. No, yeah, completely different. Okay. Yeah, yeah. This is a this is a logical thing, not a physics thing. Okay. Um, so there's another possible world that's exactly like this one, except there's an elephant over there in the mm -hmm. corner. Okay. Otherwise, they're exactly the same. That is a possible world. And when I and for me to say, it is possible that there is an elephant in this room. That is a true sentence because there exists a possible world with an elephant in it. Yeah. Okay? Can we not extrapolate that to God? That it's true that God exists? That's really an interesting question and it's actually debated. Because uh, it sounds like, well, maybe atheism is true in this world, but maybe there's another world in which there is a God. That's going to be problematic, uh, but, it's, but it's actually up in the air. It's uh, logically tenable. At least there's a case it's not clear. It's not clear that it's logically tenable, and that's why it's controversial. Because intuitively, it seems like it ought to be. Yeah. If, if, yeah, if an well, elephant can be here, well, yeah, then why can't I we mean, make an abstract notion of something? Yeah, there could have been a god. There just isn't. Okay, that sounds sensible. But um, if there could have been a god, then there will be a god in a possible world. The trouble with that is the way we conceptualize God is God is a necessary being, and that means if God exists at all. God must exist in every possible world. It's a kind of all-or-nothing entity because of the way um, uh, God... Because omnipresence, the omnipresence of God? Not just omnipresent, but I mean in every world, uh, whether there is a God or not, it's not an option. Um, it's either in no world or in every world. Mathematics is like this. See, if uh, pi is an irrational number, then pi is an irrational number in every possible world. There's no world in which it's equal to three and a quarter or something like that. Okay? It's always irrational. And it's the same with God. Uh, either God just can't exist. It's impossible. He's like a contradiction. Wait, what? How, how's that, how is that commensurate with the elephant, though? Because to me, if you can construct an elephant in another world, how do you know that that elephant, being true, now we have to get to some physics, but how do you know that that elephant can logically exist, just like logically, pi is irrational. Okay? Yeah. We can prove that. Pi is irrational. Now we're saying there's an elephant in this room, and we're saying that that's possible. How do we know that's possible? How do we know that's a possibility, just like we know for sure pi is irrational? 
Um, okay, uh, 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 fair enough. Prima facie, it's possible. Like, you can't think of any principled objection to there being an elephant in this room. You say, well, how did it get here? You know, uh, answer, they, it, it's a small elephant. They brought it up in the elevator, walked it over here, and it's been sitting here since we started talking. You, you can easily imagine a scenario in which, you know, something like that is, is, is the case. So the possibility of an elephant in this room is, is a pretty clear case of, of a possibility. Okay. Um, but the God, the, the God one, that's a, that's a really hard nut to crack. Because it seems like God, because remember, God is defined in a certain way. In fact, some people even def define God as the necessary being. And then anything that's necessary must be true in every possible world. This is standard logic talk about possibility. Um, and God would have the same status as 2 plus 2 equals 4. If it's true anywhere, it's true everywhere. 2 plus 2 equals 5. If it's false anywhere... It's false everywhere, okay? And uh, so God is either like one or the other. I'm come down on the side that God's like a contradiction, an absurdity. Well, that only disproves the Christian notion of God. So what about these Hindu notions of God? or other? Oh, yeah, that's fine, it? yeah. So then they could exist. They could exist, yeah. So you're against an omnipresent, necessary... D don't say omnipresent. Say uh, um, omnipresent just means God is everywhere in space. No. Um, that's that's unchristian and unmuslim. Um, the standard view is God is external, outside of space and time, mm -hmm. and, and can uh, observe us, cognizes us, but isn't in here participating. Yeah. Okay. Might intervene for a miracle here and there, but the idea that God is one of us like that song, God is one of us, just a stranger yeah. on the bus, yeah, and so yeah, on. Yeah. That's, that's heresy for Christians. Wouldn't Christians say that you're made in the image of God? There's a little bit of God in you, and every time you act, sure. God is almost acting through you. Mm. When you make a decision, mm. it's like you're a, a conscious that's gonna, They're, they're going to take that as a metaphor. I'm just debating you. Yeah. I'm just, what if it's not? What if that is the Christian notion of God? That actually, there's a little spark. There, there is an external God, but also He's in you as well. Okay. Could that exist in these possible worlds? Is that commensurate with the idea of not not if it's not if it's part and parcel of a certain kind of God who can't exist in principle, but a lesser God? Uh, I mean, look, the, you, you know the difference between deism and theism. Uh, uh, theism is like standard religion, organized religion. Uh, God is uh, um, God cares about you. Okay? God is a person. And it's a personal God. Uh, you can talk to God. Might He might answer your prayers. You know all of that sort of stuff. That's that's a theistic view. A deistic view of God just says there is a kind of supernatural creator of all of this, but he doesn't give a damn about us. Maybe he died after he created it. Maybe even he's a committee. Mm. You know, maybe there's okay. 27 of them and they fought over the details, and that's why a lot so goes the God wrong. God exists but doesn't intervene. And doesn't intervene. Set things up to just run like a, okay. a magnificent clockwork. And that's deism. That's, that's a, a deism, yeah. Okay, okay. so 18th century uh, would-be atheists were often deists. And that's because Darwin hadn't come along yet, and they, they couldn't make sense of design in nature. And they thought, you, you have to have an intelligent designer for mm -hmm. this. They couldn't escape that. They certainly didn't believe a word of Christianity. But they did believe in some kind of intelligent creator of all of this. Uh, and that's a very common view in the Enlightenment. The American founding fathers, you know, like Jefferson, 
um, Franklin, Washington, they were deists. They weren't Christians. Americans don't even know their own history. They make a big deal of being a Christian nation. Actually, they started out as, a, as an anti-Christian nation. So you must love America. <laughs> Not with Trump. <laughs> I should explain Sokol's motivation, okay? So Sokol is very left-wing, very concerned with social issues, and um, he was worried that, um, uh, well, like me, um, he, he's also, I'm also quite concerned with a whole lot of social issues, and I worry about students who, who would become, you know, uh, socially active in, in an efficient and productive way because they're pro-science, they're willing to, you know, get the facts right and uh, do serious investigations into the social situation and so on. The trouble with postmodernism, it becomes a bit lazy. Uh, it's given to sloganeering. Uh, it's given to uh, analyses that, um, that, well, I don't know. They, they see certain things as, as political that aren't political. And, and, and often just pick up the wrong end of the stick. Anyway, Sokol, as you already indicated, submitted this ridiculous paper and said, I'd like to publish this. And it made all kinds of claims um, using quasi-technical jargon, um, some of thing, the things you would know. So he said, mathematics supports a woman's right to an abortion. It's in the form of the axiom of choice. Do you know this? Yeah. Okay. Now, you, having a math background, you understand that the axiom of choice has got nothing to do with free will choice and whether you have an abortion. Um, so it was full of jargon, just ridiculous jargon like this, and the, and the editors published it. I've always had a bit of a guilty conscience about it, even though I completely support Sokol and his motivation. I was editing a journal at the time. And when I saw the headline in the New York Times, it was on the front page. And all I could, I choked. Oh, oh God, this could happen to me. I wonder if anybody's hoaxing me. And um, the thing is, in the popular press, there's all this talk about peer review. Mm -hmm. and, and they don't really understand the peer review process and why you would ignore the, the process in certain cases and do something else. And it's not intellectual corruption. It's just something else that's going on. So if you've got a journal, a physics journal, it's a very well-established um, discipline with uh, methodological guidelines that have been laid down. They're reliable. And if somebody follows them, they can be okay. If they violate them badly, you think, no, this is a piece of garbage. We are not going to take it seriously. But if you're starting a new field, like postmodern accounts, of postmodern accounts of science or something like that, you don't have a long tradition that you can point to and say this is this sort of thing works, that sort of thing does. You're 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 you know you're in virgin territory, and people who are doing that actually need to be you know encouraged and given encouraged to explore. Yeah, and and, and given a lot of free reign. Don't come down on them too hard for for you know. Um, publishing stuff that turns out to be crap. Now, what about the grievance study affair? Well, I'm in, I'm in favor of um, giving them a lot of free reign. 
Um, by gr by grievance studies, you mean things like women's studies, black studies, Aboriginal studies, and so on. No, I the think most recent hoax that came out. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't know it well. I read a very short article on it, but I don't like the spirit behind attacking them. I think they they do need to be attacked every now and then, and uh, they certainly can't shouldn't just think that they can do any old crap at all. But often they're trying to do stuff. And they don't have set guidelines to know when, when something is going to work well and when something isn't going to work well. They want to encourage a very generous and broad um, conversation about issues. And I think that's fair and it's intellectually healthy. And, and it's in line with academic freedom. And, in, and, and, and it's part and parcel with academic freedom. The only thing I have against postmodernism not not these other not these disciplines like women's studies or anything like that i think it's terrific i think we should have women's studies and so on um, but i am on the pro science side of the left and that's because i think once you if you're if you're a serious postmodern who says oh truth truth schmooth you know mm -hmm. uh, facts smacks you know whatever um, you end up shooting yourself in the foot it, it's really really important to get things like um, global warming right in order to you know to understand what's going on and to and to tackle it um, uh, politically to solve these problems I don't I don't see that postmoderns have ever done anything useful in combating climate change the facts about racism the facts about the climate the facts about uh, the pharmaceutical industry those things are really important that we get those things out there might be some truth to this. So I usually back off and say, well, you know, some approximation to an egalitarian socialist world. Um, and maybe some people are five times as well off as other people. But that would be such an incredible improvement over the current situation that I'd be, I'd go happily to my grave, you know, if uh, the difference between the poorest and the richest were only fivefold in wealth. As you know, it's much, 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 much greater than that now. Um, I also think uh, what I care about most of all, um, uh, you see, a lot of people care about rights and they care about freedom and freedom of speech and, and so on. And I think those things are important. But I think human well-being trumps everything. If all humans are reasonably well off and they're happy, and content, then that's the kind of world I want. If they, if we have to sacrifice some rights, say you even limit freedom of speech to some extent for that, I'd be willing to do that. I think going to the wall for complete freedom of speech, for instance, is a complete mistake. I like Canada's laws. Uh, we have a great, a great deal of freedom of speech here, but not complete. So for instance, you, that we have hate laws. I'm, I'm in favor of hate laws. Now, I have lots of philosophical colleagues and American friends and so on who think the U.S. is much better in this regard. There's just no constraints on your speech. I mean, you can't, you can't libel someone. You can't incite violence. Yeah, you can't incite violence. But, but you, can, you can deny the Holocaust in the United States. You, you could declare that Muslims are a treacherous group of people and they ought to be uh, oppressed and so on. Uh, you can't say that in Canada. You could be, you know, prosecuted under the law for that. I favor those constraints on freedom of speech. 
And I would favor probably other constraints too on other kinds of things that we consider free for in exchange for an enormous increase in human well-being that we're happier healthier we have richer lives um, people can intellectually develop and physically develop you know to the best of their abilities that's the kind of world I want that's a le very much a left-wing view of things um, I think that ought to be you know as far as you go but it's going a hell of a long way um, usually when the left is is uh, attacked for going too far it's either they want they want to use a great deal of force to bring about egalitarianism that's one way and the other way is the um, political correctness they're accused of excessive political correctness I think that's just almost always that's a false charge that's just a bogus charge that's like Donald Trump you know, complaining that millions of people uh, are streaming across the Mexican border, murdering and raping. It's just a lie, right? It's just a grotesque lie. Okay. Um, there is something, we, we never actually talked about this, but I'm going to interject this, because this is an allusion back to what we were talking about earlier. Political correctness is not a threat to the university. We're incredibly free to do whatever the hell we want. Nobody is being um, uh, suppressed inside a university. It's a remarkable... Universities are remarkable institutions. I think they're wonderful institutions. But what about what happened with Jordan Peterson, where they didn't even want him to speak? And they, shut, they had a whole protest against him, and they wanted to get him fired? Yeah, that's probably a bad idea. Uh, he should, he should um, probably be allowed to speak. Um, probably. Yeah, I, I will say probably, and because I'm not absolutely definite. Um, very likely, I think. But I'm, I won't say that about absolutely everybody. So, for instance, um, uh, let's take, what's his name? Spencer. Richard Spencer. Richard Rich. Spencer, who's a, right, uh, who's a white nationalist. Yes. Yeah. See, I have serious qualms about uh, allowing him to speak. Um, we universities that is are in a kind of a bind here if we let if, if the universities let Richard Spencer speak he gets a kind of prestige and cachet so you're worried and, about uh, legitimizing his yeah, point of view just by, he gets, just by allowing speaking. him to speak at a university um, and then but if we turn him down then we get branded as being as, as censoring him political correctness and so on Universities can't win, and often right wing uh, right wingers know we can't win, and often they don't even care whether they're allowed to speak or not because they know they're going to win uh, just by either speaking mm -hmm. or being turned down, and then they go to the press and say we're being censored, and and then they get um, you know they win some notoriety for this. Anyway, I don't think that. Um, um, intellectual, real intellectual life of the university is in any way harmed by so-called political correctness. The real dangers to universities is completely tangential to this. The real dangers is the commercialization of research. We haven't talked about that at yeah, all. Yeah, I saw and, that. And that's, that's, a, that's a really big deal and it's an incredibly deep subject and you probably don't want to go into it. And you have a talk about that, right? Well, you, uh, you I, I, I used to do a lot of work. I, I, I haven't done much recently, but I used to do a lot of work on this. Do you have one that's public that people can go to? 
that people can search on YouTube. Yeah, yeah, I can, I can, I don't, not off the top of my okay, head, well, but I can we'll find the, something and... We'll put the links in the description. And give you a link, yeah. But um, the commercialization of research is having a tremendous effect. Uh, pharmaceuticals, I think, are in just particular. about the worst. Yeah. yeah, it skews research. So health problems are not tackled by the best solution, they're tackled by chemical solutions, which might be the best solution, but maybe diet, exercise, for depression, um, uh, things like exercise are at least as effective as the, the best um, uh, antidepressants. Without side uh, effects. But you, but you can't, yeah. But you can't make... Um, can't uh, patent it. You can't patent it. And so it's having an effect on what kind of research is actually carried out. That is a real worry. So if we're interested in the truth, and not just the truth, but truths that are good for human beings, you know, that improves the quality of our lives, our health, for instance, yeah. then uh, we have to really, really, really worry and get a grip. There's just far too much money coming in from industry. And um, they're, they're, in fact, often they don't give all that much money, but um, they'll, they top up. Like the government, but we get money from uh, uh, government funding. And that's arm's length. That is, the government doesn't interfere with that. They just give you know, the National Research Council money. And then they distribute it in a peer-reviewed way to physics and chemistry and so on. But uh, often um, individual researchers will, go to, will, will apply for money from a pharmaceutical company. So they're getting a ton of money from the government. And then the pharmaceutical company will often give them significant top-ups. And it'll change the direction of the research. And that's having a very bad effect. And we're just getting crap uh, um, drugs often these days because of it. You're not a fan of the FDA. Do you feel well, like the, the FDA, FDA is not so bad? The FDA doesn't have enough. I, I I remember hearing a talk that the FDA's restrictions are too much, are too restrictive because they're limiting the amount of drugs that can come into market. Oh uh, no, they're not restrictive enough in that sense. Um, drug companies will complain that they're slow and restrictive Costly. and so on. And no, we need to, to we need to change the FDA rules. Well the, well, the Americans need to change them. Uh, right now, the, the, they are mandated to license anything that goes through a clinical trial and is, is considered effective when compared with a placebo. Mm -hmm. That can be incredibly minuscule, you know, and, and yet billions of dollars will be spent on, on, on these drugs. And if this drug gets patented, and there's only generics to compete with it, then they'll pour a ton of money into advertising. Doctors will start prescribing this, and doctors can be co can, uh, corrupted by their prescription habits and get money from the um, pharmaceuticals. By the cheerleaders. And, yeah, <laughs> you know about the cheerleaders. Yeah, that's remarkable. Um, and. Uh, and these often uh, the old, a very old generic drug is much much better than these new newer drugs, uh, fewer side effects, better positive effect, incredibly cheap you know to, to produce and so on. Uh, it's a, it's really a tragedy. It's hard to know how to combat it. I think I, I think I know how to combat it in Canada. Hard to know how to combat it in the United States because the United States economy is so structured around intellectual property rights. I've tried to figure out how much of American exports to the world is in the form of IP rights. Because whenever you buy anything that's American, I mean, you buy a piece of plastic, but it's got, but its value is in the form of IP rights mostly. And um, so, what percentage of the economy is actually 
IP rights. I don't actually have views across the board on patents, but on drugs, I think it's a, it's a terrible mistake and we should eliminate patents on drugs. Um, one of the reasons is, uh, unlike, uh, say, my new iPhone, full of patents. Yeah. But I can tell whether the damn thing works. Yeah. You know, I just turn it on and it works or it doesn't work. But uh, in the case of almost every drug, there's no way for an individual to determine whether he or she is benefiting from this drug. All you can do is look at it in a very statistical way. And there's an incentive to produce a drug that works as long as you take it. True. And that's not good. Uh, oh, I see what you mean. Yes, um, uh, treating chronic diseases is, is, is much better than uh, curing something with a vaccine, for yeah. instance. Yeah. yeah, all kinds of problems like this. Um, anyway, commercialization, that's I think, is the real threat to intellectual life um, and not political correctness, which is really, really small potatoes, even in its worst examples. You said that you had some trouble with Jordan Peterson's point of view of truth. Oh, well, watching, uh, watching a video that you directed me to, and I'm glad uh, this was a video, uh, a discussion between him and uh, Sam Harris. Who you also don't necessarily like. Uh, I have special problems with Harris. Maybe we'll talk about that. Maybe we'll talk about that later. Yeah, so this was, uh, Harris invited him on, and Harris seems to be, one of these people who doesn't like political correctness and thought that Jordan Peterson might be good, uh, a nice ally perhaps because he too is anti-political correctness and so on. But then they got bogged down um, on this notion of truth and, and as far as I can tell, Peterson is just wacko on the concept of truth. Um, I should just explain, when people talk about truth, they're not talking about particular truths. Like we can argue whether or not the, the neutrino has mass, okay? We don't know what's true and we don't know what's false. And we can argue about that and produce evidence. This is arguing about the very concept of truth itself. What does it mean for something to be true? And a normal person, normal philosophers, standard philosophers, take um, a more or less a common sense view about truth. So a sentence, a statement, a belief um, is true because it corresponds to the way things are. So the sentence, there is a recording device on the table, that's the sentence. That's a true sentence because there is in fact a table, a recording device, and one is on top of the other. It's a very simple conception of truth. There are other conceptions. Some people say, no, no, Truth has got to be linked to evidence. So the sentence, there is a recording device on the table, is true if and only if there's some method of gathering evidence to establish that truth. Lacking that evidence, it's not true. Mm -hmm. If you're a realist about truth, as I am, then uh, a sentence could be true even though the evidence isn't there for it. You shouldn't believe it, if you don't have the evidence. That's a different matter. But truth and evidence are, are, are things that you can pry apart. So what is Peterson's conception of truth, as He's you understand it? It's a crazy idea um, that he calls Darwinian. And so a sentence is true if it has survival value. 
he's thinking of this as a very crude uh, thing. Um, there is there are some uh, philosophical ideas about truth that are maybe a little close to that. You know that he might, if he knew about them, he could say, "Oh, that's I sort of believe that." Such as pragmatism. Pragmatism often um, identifies truth with what is workable, detectable, serviceable to life. Serviceable to life, but it's more, much more sophisticated than mere crude Darwinian survival value. Um, but you can sort of see some kinship between Peterson's view and um, and pragmatism. Now, the trouble with Peterson's crude view is there's a ton of stuff we know that's independent of survival value. In fact, may even be true contrary to survival value. So just think of all of the things you know about quantum field theory that it, that wouldn't help you in this in life's struggle at all. You could, if you were in if you're in the jungle trying to, you know, uh, like, like our distant ancestors, you're not going to survive, thank, thank goodness, uh, based on your, your knowledge of quantum field theory. You could make out a, a Jordan-type case for a lot of crude, simple beliefs, like um, trust your color perception to distinguish uh, edible things from non-edible things. You know, that sort of level. That's fine. But to be... To, to, to enter into the realm of sophisticated science, which he certainly wants to participate in, he's got to have an awful lot more subtle and sophisticated view of what he's doing than his simple Darwinian view of truth.